Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daryl Pace, and you are? Byron Pace. I thought he was actually going to stumble there and not actually uh, continue on with <laughs> his name. I can still remember my name. Okay, good. Um, and on this week's show, we have a two and a bit hour epic, two podcasts. Yeah. So there's, uh, I think it's about an hour and 40 for the first one, and then it's about 20 five minutes for the next one. We're going to tell you all about uh, what's coming up on the show and who is on the show, as well as announcements for prizes and so on. First up, we're going to be hearing from Charlie Brownlow, uh, who is a, a sporting agent, and we're going to be tackling some quite prickly topics. One of the big ones is uh, the prevalence of big bag days in the driven shooting uh, part of the industry within the UK, but we do talk about a lot of other topics within that. And very interestingly, at the end, we talk about a, a train trip that you can essentially uh, get him to organise for you, which takes you for a tour around Scotland where you can hunt and fish and do yeah, all it, manner of interesting it does sound, things. It does sound pretty amazing doing a, a train journey like that. Incidentally, these two podcasts couldn't actually link up any better because we're talking about uh, what's happening to the game meet um, and one way that it is being used uh, for good yeah, uh, at the end of the show. So it actually couldn't be better timing that they've been done together. I would say that it was planned, <laughs> it but wasn't. it kind of landed like yeah. that. Uh, so the second part, you're going to be hearing from Tim Woodward from the Country Food Trust, and he's going to explain all about what the Country Food Trust has been doing and how they utilize game to give to charities to feed people in need. Uh, and in other news, as of uh, the same time this uh, show is out, we are on another show, The Yorkshire Gent, which is out Exactly the same time this morning. I think it was just out this morning. Yeah, yeah. I think it was out. And uh, you get to hear us chat about ourselves. So if you want to know a little bit more about us and uh, a little bit more about how we started and... Our way of thinking. Our way of thinking, then head over to the Yorkshire Gent podcast and listen to that one. Yeah, and let us know what you think. Yeah. Uh, We have been quite blown away with the response to the coffee. We mentioned it two weeks ago. We actually have uh, a second coffee released now since uh, we last, well, since you last heard from us. First up, we had the McNab, which was in, uh, being released in conjunction with the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, and we have just released the Gilly. Yep. Uh, I mean, since the release of the McNab, we didn't quite realize how what the response would be and we actually sold out of coffee and had to reorder like another massive load again uh, and there is only I think one day one day after this podcast comes out there's a small delay on the gilly uh, coffee so if you have ordered in the last two weeks uh, it is coming in the next few days it's being sent in the next few days and the only delay has been uh, our, our labels that's it the coffee is sitting. The here. coffee is labelless. Yeah, it's just labelless. So we're um, sorting that out right now. And I should say that uh, the the deal that we have with with the, the new coffee, the Gilly, is exactly the same as we have 
with the McNabb, where one pound from every 250 gram bag that you buy is going to an organisation. And for the Gilly, it is Salmon Trout Conservation UK. Uh, They're doing uh, a lot of work right now, well, for all manner of things to do with uh, salmon and trout and uh, aquatic studies, but particularly to do with fish farms and uh, campaigning for changing the way that fish farms operate so that they're not affecting the wild stocks particularly of sea trout you're going to be seeing a lot more from them i would guess in the in the news and media in the coming months and if you don't know about them go and give them a google and check them out see what they're doing we do uh bulk discount ordering so if you are wanting to buy a load i think it's seven or more yeah uh yeah seven or more yeah then uh then we can do that we also give a forces discount so if you are it well uh, forces uniform services so if you are in a uniform service then uh just shoot us a message and we will square you away we mentioned two weeks ago that we were going to be running a raffle on our website to win a safari in Eastern Cape, South Africa. And that was to help raise money for drought relief and anti-poaching there. It's being done in conjunction with Winterberg Safaris and a chap there called uh, Dia van der Lange and a few other professional hunters. The farms and the professional hunters have donated the animals, uh, their time and the lodge for the safari. It is now up. It is now on the website. So if you go to the shop on our website, you will be able to buy a £10 raffle ticket. Uh, we're hoping to raise £3,000, which is roughly the, the the value of the safari, in order to, to send some money to them. For those people who don't know, they've suffered with really a, a severe it's, it's, lack it's, of rain. It's actually been on the news the last week about the drought. I in, that. Um, in Well, they were talking about Cape Town. Oh, okay. Uh, but the point is the drought is uh, everywhere. Yeah, it, it's pretty severe. And it's not just like this year. They've barely had any rain for the last five to seven years. So the, they are actually capturing game now and taking it to other parts of South Africa because they can't physically bring in enough water and food to to actually feed the game that's there. And I'm talking about game, not just the cattle and livestock. So they're in a pretty dire place right now, and this is what the guys there who we know. In fact, if you go back podcast maybe six months ago, you'll be able to hear from Dear von Delange because I was there with him, and we did a, we sat in his lounge and, and did a podcast after we'd been hunting. So you'll be able to hear from the man who's kind of putting this together over, over in the Eastern Cape. We've actually had a lot of entries already, so I would encourage you to go and enter. It's a chance to win an incredible experience, and if you don't win, then you've done your little bit to help. Yeah, you have help the game uh, I mean, and wildlife. We've there. actually been blown away since we put this up. Uh, we had someone from the United States buy ten tickets in one go. Yeah, which was incredible. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, people are already entering. Uh, it's going to run probably for the most of this year. We'll see how we go with with raising the funds. If we raise the funds. Uh, fairly quickly, you never know. There might be an opportunity to run a whole a whole new raffle. It just depends what happens. Yeah. So basically, we'll run it until we raise the the money required, which, uh, by judging the by the rate people are buying tickets, isn't actually going to be that long. So I, I should have actually detailed exactly what you have a chance to win. <clears throat> Everything is on the website, but it's uh, five days, six nights. Uh, one trophy kudu, one trophy impala, one trophy warthog. 
It's in the Eastern Cape. You do have to get to South Africa in the Eastern Cape to m- most people fly to Port Elizabeth uh, Airport. I know from having done it for years, you can get to Port Elizabeth for around six hundred pounds, sometimes a bit less, five hundred fifty quid. D- yeah, depending. So basically, from, from you, the UK. your your entire trip from the UK, you're looking probably about between I would say between five and six hundred pounds, and you're fully taken care of once. Yeah, you're, once you're there, once you're there for the five days, six nights taken care. That's of. That's pretty damn good. And I should say this isn't limited to people from from the UK. You can no, go no. there. From well, any part of the well, world. we just said that you know someone from the United States just bought ten tickets. Yeah, yeah. So the point is, it doesn't matter where you're from in the world. You just need to make sure you can get to South Africa. Uh, so that's great and a, a very worthy cause. And if you think that you might never be able to have the chance to hunt in Africa for ten quid, you actually might have a chance. So it, it's wor- definitely worth a punt, and it's a great cause. We have uh, a winner from two weeks ago, which uh, the competition was simply to subscribe to our website, and we had a ton of subscriptions to the website over the last two weeks, and it was it was open to everybody who had subscribed to the website. So thank you very much, and we did actually put out for the first time in a very long time um, an update newsletter to our subscribers, just letting you know what's going on, and the, in fact, the details for the raffle that I just talked about was on there. Uh, the winning prizes were a, a Northern Shooting Show mug, uh, a Northern Shooting Show um, towel. Face towel, I think. Yeah. I was, I was explaining last time how I use it to dry my windscreen in my Land Rover. And a Hornady beer mug. And the winner, which is just completely randomly selected from all our subscribers, is Tom McGrath. So congratulations, Tom. Ping us uh, a message and we will send it over to your address. Easy as that. And the next competition? Is to win a vintage Hornady reloading sign. It's pretty cool. We've yeah. got a number of them around the office, uh, probably far too many. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they're really cool. And all you have to do is, it's this is going to be an Instagram-only one. So uh, we'll put up a post of the sign, and all you'll have to do is uh, tag a friend underneath. Mm. That's it. Related only because it's also Hornady, but for those gun nuts out there, uh, there's a lot of talk right now about the new Hornady PRC cartridge, which uh, was released officially at SHOT Show a few weeks back. Uh, I haven't seen anybody really talk about it in the UK yet, although I have written a one-pager in Sporting Rifle, although I haven't handled it just on the specs and what it can deliver. So you can go and read that in Sporting Rifle. But there are some American gun writers who have talked about it in videos. So you can go and give that a Google for those people who love cartridges and a good excuse to buy a new rifle. In other news, we will be going to Iwa. Uh, so if uh, you want to catch up with us or meet up with us, uh, shoot us a message and we can arrange a time. Uh, it's normally a very, very busy period for us. So It's an incredibly busy three days. Yeah, it is. Uh, we'll also be going to the Schoon Game Fair and uh, maybe, well, obviously we're going to the Northern Shooting Show as well because we've got a number of things on which we've talked about loads and uh, other shows which include our film festival. Uh, and we are potentially going to the game fair as well mm-hmm. so that that gives you the calendar throughout the year of what we're going to be up to i think that there's a very very good chance and he's just sorting out right now is that uh the gentleman who i mentioned earlier dear von Delanga of winterberg safaris who's connected to the raffle will be at the northern shooting show as well yeah. and you will be able to speak to him at our tent we're going to have our big tp tent set up uh, somewhere well, as soon as we know the location we will let you know but it's you will be, be able to buy our coffees direct from yes, the, from the Northern Shooting Show. It'll be, the, in fact, the first place uh, that you'll ever be able to buy it from, like, walk up to us and buy it. It yeah, will be the first place. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to have our stove going inside the tent 
and we're going to have some coffee brewing in there. Yeah. So the aroma of coffee to help encourage you come and buy some McNabb and Gilly coffee, but you can also have a taste of it. We uh, ran a poll uh, two weeks ago now asking if people would be interested in purchasing some car stickers off of us um, to help advertise the show. Uh, and also we want to do competitions off the back of it. And uh, most people said that they would be willing to buy one for between £1 and £2. We have now ordered, I think... 250 of them um i imagine they will go quite quickly they'll be on our shop uh, very soon i'm not sure the delivery date it's gonna be within the next week um we are basically we don't want to make really any money from this at all so because it's uh, it's a bit of fun uh so we're basically giving it to you for cost price um it will be up on the website just check it out buy one uh, we might even do little combo deals and throw them in with prizes and, mm. and th- things like that and the idea behind it is not only will you be uh, driving around with it on your vehicle so you get more awareness of the show more people get to listen to it secondly if we spot it out and about when we're driving throughout the uk or the world uh then in fact there's a bigger prize for if we see it in a foreign country yeah we're going to work that out actually because it's going to have to it'll be it'll run for a quite a period of time i would think but we will we will definitely think of quite an epic prize to give away when we see somebody with the sticker yeah, so that's the idea is that we'll give out prizes throughout the year uh, or years uh, when we see car stickers at uh, shows and and just driving around on the motorway. So that's the idea. There's, it's it's not a new idea. The local radio stations around here have been doing it for years. Uh, I think TFM's a local station. They used to do the car sticker prize where you won a, a grand when they when they uh, went around town. We're, we're not, not going to be handing we're out. Not, we're not giving out a grand, <laughs> just to let you know. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's that's the idea, and uh, I hope everyone gets on board with it. Well, I'm um, just very last thing to mention before we get into the show is that the entries entries are coming in for the films for the Northern Shooting Show. So if you are a potential filmmaker, you know somebody who has made some great films, or you want to put something together and enter it, there's two categories: professional and amateur. It's about the story, not necessarily not necessarily the the, the quality of, of the images there. Do not be put off. We want great stories. Um, we've had quite a few entries already. So head over to the website and get your films in because the deadline is the end of March. Well, I think we've uh, gone on for long enough and we need to get into the show. Is there anything else we need to mention, Byron? You do have a list in front of you. I, I've gone through the list. Everything's okay, that's ticked fine. off. Well... I really hope you enjoy the show. Um, it's it's a it's a good one. It's uh, if you've got a longer commute, then uh, you can listen to it in t- to two parts, hour so, hour each way. Certainly thought provoking. Exactly. Uh, enjoy the show. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. You're sitting, uh, well, not quite in our office, but in the house next to our office with a pretty spectacular view out there. Have you hunted here before in this area up in Angus? Uh, yes, just down the road at a uh, shoot, a friend shoot called Marcus. Okay. I don't know if you've... Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, no. Uh, it's great fun. Do you fun. come up in this neck of the woods much? You're uh, more up the west coast. Yeah, no, a fair amount. I mean, I cross over to go to the D quite a bit, uh, Wood End. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, Julian yes, McCall. famously, yeah. Um, fish there quite a lot. Um and uh, went to see Lower Desk the other day as well, so I've been uh, sort of all over. But uh, Claire used to work at uh, Glen Ogle up the road there yep. at the weekends. Just just at the back of my house. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, it is, a, it is a great part of the world, and I don't think we could have a better view or a better day, actually, for doing a podcast, but it's the first time it's actually been good weather for about three weeks. It's absolutely stunning. We, we will actually have to touch on the art very soon yeah so uh, uh, during well, we'll the podcast. probably have to get Charlie's wife actually yeah, on I, th- I think point. we do. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> She'd love that. 
Yeah, some people might not have heard of you, but they've probably heard of your, your yeah, wife I, or seen her on Instagram. I am now at the game fair and all the fairs. I'm like, oh, you're Claire's husband. Claire's husband. I'm no longer yeah. Charlie Brownlow. I'm just Claire's, Claire's husband. husband. <laughs> just, give, just give us a 30-second rundown on, on what your wife does because we will have her on at some point and I'm very, very taken with her work. Yeah, so she, uh, purely by chance, uh, ended up using the uh, sort of hard end of a pheasant tail feather, cutting it like an old-fashioned quill pen, and then using ink on watercolour paper, she draws, uh, paints um, UK wildlife, a lot of African wildlife. She's off to Kenya next week uh, doing a bit of research. Um, and because the nib is soft, it jumps over the, the pimply watercolour paper, creating a directional splatter, mm. I think I call it. So it gives the whole animal, bird... Uh, movement. She's done a lot of fish recently as well, which yeah. is the pike. The pike. Oh, yes, the pike. Oh man, <laughs> I want that pike for the yeah. wall. That pike is awesome. It's uh, that has gone down really well. But she's yeah. Her, so the fish project is coming along for the uh, uh, London Fly Fishing Fair in April. Brilliant. Um, so uh, I assume she, she's had to. She actually studied live fish to do that. Um, it's probably more a question for sitting her, on the bank watching yeah. me try and catch them <laughs> she's actually a very uh, very good fisherwoman in her own right actually she uh, she casts a very good line but um, patience I think sometimes <laughs> yeah well I, I'm at some point this year probably at a game fair where I can, when I, where I can actually meet her and ha- have a look at the collection I think we need to get some for the office and if you want to see it I'm pretty sure the Instagram is pheasant feather art pheasant feather art yeah, yeah there we go absolutely thank you it's alright <laughs> Uh, Charlie, just by way of background for our listeners, give me a feel of what you do on a day-to-day basis. What, what is your business? Because we're going to be talking a, a bit about that today, uh, amongst other things within the sort of field sports community and industry. Uh, so I'm an uh, independent uh, sporting agent. Um, I now work slightly differently to uh, how uh, regular sporting agents work in that I have, I'm now r- running a sort of more referral on a referral basis. So uh, I sit down, I have a con- conversation with the guest about what they're looking for, what they want, uh, as per normal. But then I will introduce them directly to the estate. Um, at that point, I will have uh, agreed, negotiated with both the guest and the estate on the odd occasion on my commission, uh, which the guest pays me direct. Uh, and then the guest will then deal with all the paperwork and all the money it goes between estate and guest. Uh, I am still very much there as the guest's agent um, uh, with any problems that might arise or any questions that they don't want to ask the owner uh, or keeper or manager. Um, so, yeah, it's slightly a slightly new take on sporting agency. So how long have you been doing it like that? Uh, literally only three months. So oh, it's, okay, it's so very, very fresh. So you did it in the more sort of traditional way before? I did, indeed, yeah. So what was the reason for the change? I think people nowadays, you know, you've got the, 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 the all the platforms online uh, that offer this direct access. Uh, also, a lot of the estates are now being taken on by um people who are very comfortable with the internet they're very comfortable with having photos of the estate and their property online uh and that has been a game changer for me at my end of the market um so they they've done much more direct marketing direct marketing you know you've got the um scottish uh sports tourism group um who uh offer a very good platform um, but what I do is I'm actually there as a person, as an agent to talk to. I can get a feel for the group, um, the ability of the group, 
whether that's physically or actually doing the shooting, fishing or stalking, um, because obviously that has a big factor. It plays a big factor in the enjoyment of the week. So it's, a, um, it's about tailoring it to the right places for the specific group. Tailoring. So it's it's direct access without losing the ability to tailor the trip. Okay. Absolutely. And I can also do all the other bits and pieces like transport, uh, licenses, um, and also look after the non-sporting guests, which are very often the most important people in a, in a sporting party. So if you're coming up north, uh, and I'm pr- predominantly uh, let properties in Scotland, um, the most important people to look after are the people who are not actually doing the sport. Okay. You know, if they are entertained, if they've got, you know, yeah. been given nice walks to do, where they're not out there thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to ruin the stalking, I better stay in the lodge. Uh, you know, it's easy to be entertained if you're doing if you're doing the hunting. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you it's all taken care of. Yeah, That's yeah. what the estate does, and I think that uh, to be able to look after husbands, wives, uh, children who uh, perhaps don't want to take part in it, to show them where the nearest castles are, the nearest best beaches. You know, I mean, there's any number of things that Scotland has to offer uh, non-sporting guests that it's a crying shame that it's more more utilised. And actually, I wrote an article. Um, that featured uh, Johnny uh, from Sandgrass oh, Travel. Seeing him in a few hours' time. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know his his business is offering people uh, these extracurricular activities that Scotland has that I think have sometimes been ignored in the classic sporting trip. Mm. And I think it's nice to pull all that in and offer it to the clients in a sort of uh, in a way that's not uh, biased to any one particular. Mm. So you, you've done a bit of work with him for your. For your clients who need that kind of absolutely, yeah. and I'm dying to to uh, sort of run one of, one of his more adventurous trips with perhaps a, a trip hind stalking, and then have the team go off and do something crazy with him on the hills. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it'd be epic. <laughs> Much like your uh, like your um, the wilderness with the wilderness, absolutely. Yeah, it's good fun. I think an increasing number of people want to do stuff. Yeah, like I that. think more people want to do things like that, but. You know, I've never actually before you mentioned it there. I've never even thought about when you know when you book your your week stalking or shooting, whatever it is. You always forget about the other people that might come with that might not want to do it every day. Mm. And yeah, you, someone has to look after them. Well, and, and actually, if you want to do it again the following year, you've got to get it right for them. Yeah. Otherwise, they'll be like, mm, I'm not coming. coming. No, I'm not coming. Yeah, uh, which slightly takes the the wind out of anyone's sails. I think. Yeah, um, there is a lot of great things to see and do up around Scotland so yeah it's a shame not to, to and, harness that and even for the actually you know, even for the people who are if you're going on a trip to you know say it's stags or you're out hind stalking for, for a week it is worth taking the time an extra day at the start or end or sometimes in the middle just to have a break to go and see something out with because I know a lot of people and, and we're until the last couple of years even we were, were guilty of it until we started traveling around a lot of Scotland with work is that you might live in an area or you might go to the same area every year, but you never really see it. You go yeah. to one place, you do the same thing, but there could be an awesome castle or a fantastic piece of history just around the corner that you don't never my, ever see. My uh, my brother-in-law, um, he's just, he was in the Navy and he's just gone from a unit down south to Faz Lane, uh, which I was in Faz Lane when I was in the Navy and it is quite a depressing base. Uh, but when he said when he joined, the commander said to him, only an idiot gets bored up here. 
which is really so yeah very wise words then he said and if <laughs> he said if worse comes to worse you can go and hunt a deer up here <laughs> I was like that's bloody nice yeah, that's really good advice that yeah. is good advice is the Navy paying <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's the uh, well I actually got him um, a stalk for his uh, Christmas uh, next year so I'm paying oh very good <laughs> very good <laughs> Uh, but no, I think also it's it's you know a lot of these estates now are, uh, are seeing this as a as a bit of an opportunity. I mean, if you look at Chest Hill, up Glen Lyon, um, I love know, Glen Lyon. Oh, it's great stunning. place. Um, Which one's ha- Chest Hill? Is that the one that's got the great stag in front of the? Yes, house? exactly. Is, yeah. yeah, and the Hamish, the uh, the stalker there, will take guests, particularly during the fishing season. He's quite busy during the stalking, uh, but certainly early on in the fishing, you know, he will take guests up on the hill to go on a bit of a safari. And, you know, some of the things they've seen, you know, regularly, golden eagles, all the deer. I mean, it's just fantastic. Maybe the odd ptarmigan and grouse. And it's a beautiful glen, that. Yeah. It is quite interesting because well, we, we had clients out only a week ago now. Three, uh, two, two weeks, weeks ago. ago. Two weeks ago. Uh, on our wilderness hunt. And they were they had things that they wanted to see when they were up here. One was a golden eagle. One was a mountain hare. And one the, was an otter. Uh, one was an otter. And we saw all but the otter. And we they saw the were, otter prince, though. We saw the otter prince. There was evidence of, of it. And, like, these guys are seasoned shooters, and yet these are the things that they had on their list to go go and see. And we kind of take it for granted because it, I, we see a golden eagle very regularly, and, and also mountain hare is just something that, that we have thousands of here. And you don't really think about it. And, like, seeing them go, wow, that's a mountain hare. Do you see that? I was like, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to add something just before I forget. Is uh, Spike, who is one of the guys on our on the, on the trip, his mom made some awesome oh. fruit loaf, and it needs to be mentioned on the podcast because we forgot last time. So Spike, <laughs> you can tell your mom <laughs> that she's had a mention on the podcast, and it was it was part of a wedding cake, I think, wasn't it? It was. It was three years old, I think. Yeah, three years old, uh, kept for the christening or for the birth of his son. Yeah. Uh, and we ate it there, and it was super. It was so delicious. Oh. Thank you to Spike's so mom. Spike's <laughs> mom, can you make some more, please? <laughs> yeah, and then send it, send it to us. <laughs> Email the show podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, and uh, and you can uh, send the send it to us. Yeah, <laughs> we would appreciate some more. It was fantastic. Uh, but you know, you're right. We do take a lot of that stuff for granted, and it's well. I mean, when you're when you're hunting up in the hills, you see that all the yeah. time. Well, I think also is you know whether you're. I think fishing perhaps not so much. You do get to stand back, and you do get to see what's happening you know the dippers the kingfishers the otters the uh, whatever else you see but i think occasionally when we're shooting and to an extent stalking you can be quite blinkered and sort of purely looking for the for the game that you're looking for it is for. easy to get into and that, you yeah. and you just your periphery goes i mean i know that when i'm beating uh for a shoot near us at home working the dogs uh you know i see all sorts of things that i wouldn't see or wouldn't have even sort of registered if I'd been a gun standing in the line or even walking. Saw a water rail the other day, which was fantastic. That was amazing. Um, so it's just nice to be able to sort of pull these things, especially if you're on a trip up north, to have the ability for someone to stand back and tell you all about it and to point things out. I think people uh, who hunt are increasingly... They increasingly want to make sure that they are experiencing the greater experience than just the task at hand, which is, if you're out hind stalking, to, to go and hopefully get a hind. Uh, and certainly the, the people who come on, on our trips, because it is much more than just hunting, it is an overarching experience. 
that is the that is the impression that they give. They want to go and see all of these things. They want to you know, feel the bit of hardship. They want to see the golden eagles. And I think especially the people who are coming new into shooting, the impression that I get from having conversations with them at game fairs or emails that we get through the podcast is that they want more of everything rather than just the one thing which maybe historically would have been the sole focus they, you know, they they want to experience everything. want to experience the the, the full package yeah, yeah. yeah because that's what that's what it's about isn't it my, oh, absolutely my cocker spaniel has just nicked a huge plank of wood off of in front of us the decking and he's Did taken he? it away somewhere so i'm oh, not sure it. if he's gone building <laughs> or he's going to go and eat he's it he's become a beaver he <laughs> yeah. put it at the river over there is that <laughs> what the knock was yeah i just saw him he gave me a shifty look and then picked up a massive plank and just walked off with it maybe he's off to go light a fire maybe it's cold <laughs> yeah. yeah it's cold out there yeah. how have you seen the um, or, I mean, maybe you've seen no change, but have you seen any change in the type of hunting that people want? I mean, it's kind of connected to what we've just been talking about, but for the, the people who've been booking hunting with you or using you as a, an agent, has it, has it changed, shift the kind of requests that you've been getting over yeah. the years you've been doing it? I think it has, actually. I think the... Uh, um, actually, funny enough, I was looking... Selena Barr wrote an article a couple of years ago on the rise of people wanting smaller bags, so 100 birds, um, and that was becoming more and more prevalent. And what's been interesting between now and then is that I think that a lot of estates have switched on to this and are now offering, uh, not necessarily species days, but certainly sort of 50 to 100, 10, 10 birds per gun sort of bag days. Uh, and they're becoming increasingly popular. And I think I've also, a lot of estates phoned me up for advice on what I'm seeing happening. And I actually had a long conversation with someone yesterday about this very point. Um, and he offers um, a sort of quite a broad range of shooting. But we were specifically talking about these these rough days. I'm not talking about mini-driven. I'm talking about rough with maybe a beater and, I a, love it. and yeah. a keeper. And you go out and maybe you might stand for a couple of bets uh, and the other guns walk around and bring it back towards you. Um that sort of thing, and I, I think it's sort of capturing the imagination of the sporting public again, and which is really exciting, I think, because I think it, uh, it enables us as shooters to be more connected with what we're actually doing. Because you know, if you're not putting the bird up over yourself, you're putting it up over your mate. Um, and let's face it, you know, you go out shooting to be with your friends, uh, meet new people as well. Obviously, that's a great thing about shooting, um, and it, and it. And it creates a really great atmosphere, a really great day. Um, and I've noticed a lot of uh, my groups from uh, Europe uh, like those days as well because it brings a bit of variety. A lot of European countries uh, don't have the game list that we have uh, with regards to species. And they can come over here and they can shoot a snipe. You know, one of them is so thrilled you know, to even see them actually on a lot of occasions. Um but I think that's a really exciting uh, sort so of the trend. Un- the unknown aspect of yeah. a, a kind of rough day. I mean, I, I love a rough day shooting. I, for me, for me personally, that's sort of when the season opens. That's the pinnacle for me. Is a, a really great day rough shooting with a good variety with good friends. My ratio it's, must be twenty miles to one bird. <laughs> <laughs> on yes. our shoot, yeah, yeah. it probably is. Uh, <laughs> on, on the estates, it's probably, <laughs> probably a little bit better than that. Well, but it doesn't change. It doesn't I, I, ruin I do the enjoyment. Lot, though. So. It doesn't. It doesn't ruin the enjoyment. Yeah, that's I, true. I, but I, I have to say, I do often sort of have this conversation with with guests on whether they're doing a, a driven day or a, a walked up day, and I certainly notice it from 
you know, the reaction at the end of the day from my guess is they'll have always had a good day if their expectations have been met. And that those expectations can be that they don't necessarily want to stand in a field for an hour while a wood is driven towards them. They'd far rather walk for 20 miles, keeping active, seeing what's happening, you know, maybe not even far a shot, but that's what they want to do. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's great. I think it, to, to some extent it, it kind of ties back into what we were just saying 10 minutes ago about the whole experience is it it feel you're much more connected to the hunting experience when you're rough shooting because like you said sometimes you'll have standing but your your friend or someone else in the group is bringing something towards you so they are part of the, the hunting maneuver if you like rather than just par- participating as part of the day and and that's great i mean that's what i enjoy absolutely i couldn't agree with you more and i think that's uh uh, the key to why people want to do this is they want to be involved. Uh, you know, they want to have a bit of banter with the uh, with the beaters and the and the keepers. Uh, you know, they want to laugh at their friends when they've driven a yeah. spectacular bird over them and they've missed it. Missed it yeah. uh, there's nothing better, in fact. In fact, that's that normally is the best me. part. <laughs> <laughs> that's I, normally me getting abuse thrown at me. I, I enjoy watching the dogs work as well when you're doing a like a rough walked up thing because you're a lot more involved with the dogs and there you see them working hard trying to f- find things and I, I love that especially when it's your own dogs as well <laughs> and well, they're be- and they're behaving well I was going to say when yeah. I can see my own dog yeah. that's, 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 <laughs> well, that, that's, that's the challenge that's the challenge we have is that <laughs> they're flushing birds so far ahead of you that you're hoping something comes, comes back. back over yes. you <laughs> the, the, the black dog that you saw that was making all the noise earlier my, my issue is that I see him at the start of the day and I and see they... him at the end of the day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> perfect everyone's had fun yeah you can see nobody's mm-hmm. going to come to us for advice of training dogs <laughs> no they're, they're not that bad just sometimes to be fair we spend a lot of time away so not, not a huge amount of time actually being able to train our dogs although I'm sure that your new dog Daryl is going to be he's been very good he's this been season. very good the, 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 amount, the amount of times that he's been out, which isn't a lot because of my injury, he's been very, very good every time. And he made his first retrieve. Well, Sadly, you weren't there. I, I, well, no. well, the thing is, is I, mean, I think this is a mark of a fairly good dog, anyway, for his first season. Byron was looking after him, and he because did... Daryl was in the back of the ambulance. I, no. No? No, this was on the other shoot. You were in the woods working the dog, oh, okay. and I wasn't in the woods. And he did a blind retrieve and took it back to the guy that shot it, and I wasn't even there controlling the dog. That's oh, yeah, that brilliant. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. 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 Tremendous. I didn't actually ask him to do it. It was just that built-in instinct. Oh, I've trained yeah. my dog to bring all the birds back. <laughs> <laughs> Is your dog one of those dogs when you're you're standing shooting, and then you, you look around and you think, I didn't shoot all those birds. Yeah, <laughs> and the much. whole line of guns, birds, have been piled up behind Ooh, your peg. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for people who own dogs, it is kind of quite frustrating. But actually, but funny enough, I, I, I do think, that, and I, I've learned this sort of relatively recently, actually, particularly taking my two young boys out beating uh, with the dogs, is the other great thing about these rough days, as you said, is that very often you uh, can have a couple of people in front and then you'll, another couple of guns are walking through and actually if you do have a disobedient dog or a dog that perhaps you don't feel you can take on a on a driven day actually it's the perfect place for them to actually enjoy you can get away with it more because you can yeah. get away with it more because as you said hopefully they drive some back yeah. drive yeah. some forward some people are a bit more relaxed about it as well it's and actually, that's the other thing that always i always feel those days are the keepers or pickers up whoever's with you it's a relaxed they're relaxed everything is just calm and we can you know you can just sort of crack on as usual do you want to do some snipe now yeah absolutely let's do it mm. uh, do you want to go and see if you can find a pigeon yeah let's do it uh flexibility one of the things uh that 
you uh, apart from your sort of shift in the way that you're acting as an agent, one of the things that you've come out with recently, uh, which we wanted to talk to you about, was your statement on bags of days or sizes of days, which is very relevant to the discussion which is happening right now between organizations. It's happening on a, almost on a daily basis on social media or on, on different shooting groups. And I, th- I think you were one of the first people, certainly one of the first agents, to come out and limit the size of bags. That was, I mean, you can elaborate did, on did, on the discussion that you had and the statement that you came out with. Just before you, you go, did you ever expect it to go quite as big as it did on Facebook? Because uh, it, it went pretty, like, I saw it everywhere being yeah. shared and everyone commenting on it. The... I, I I certainly didn't want to become some kind of martyr to a cause. I, I didn't I didn't want that. Uh, the reason why I did it was uh, it's a personal preference of mine. Also, you know, having looked after teams of guns for the last nine years within my own company and other places, I, I you know, a team that shot three hundred uh, and a team that shot two hundred, a team that shot a hundred, a team that shot fifty, they all walk away happier. And in actual fact, I would say that the teams who shoot the smaller bags are very often the teams who are, did you see that bird? Did you, did you, oh God, that was such a good shot. I saw you, I saw you uh, take a, take a cracking bird in that, in, in that little bit we did. And there's a, you know, people are more excited about it because they're seeing more, you know, their, their eyes aren't up in the air the whole time waiting for the next sort of flush of birds to come over. Um, so I think personal, it's a very personal decision on my behalf, but also actually it's got quite a lot to do with what I see in the reaction from my guests. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I, I don't see that uh, shooting um, sort of massive bags is actually provides any more to the day than shooting 200 uh, or 100 or 50. I mean, it, the, the interesting thing was the reaction I got to it. And I got a lot of messages from people most of it seemed to be in sort of support of the ethos of the reason. That All you of were... it was very supportive of what I'd done. Uh, the interesting, uh, the interesting thing was that uh, quite a lot of people, I'd say that three quarters of the people that responded me to me said, "Well, for them, sort of three hundred was probably uh, their their max they go to." So that's quite interesting. But then there were also a handful of people who said, 200 birds? Don't be ridiculous. That's huge. You know, it should be less. It should be a hundred, a hundred and fifty. But I think 200 sat squarely in the middle of the opinion that I got back. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, do you know what? Well, first of all, what what have you limited the, the days that you offer to? Oh, 200. 200. Oh, yeah. And uh, can you just backtrack? I mean, we have a lot of listeners within the UK, but actually quite a lot out with. And the way that we do a pheasant shooting here or a driven shooting in general pheasants partridge is quite different to some of the way that they do it in the States or other parts of the world where they don't do it at all. So before we get into it anymore, just explain what a day looks like for the people outside of uh, our shoreline so a, a driven day shooting uh as you say is very different to uh what happens in the rest of the world it's um it's a it's a very organized way of shooting the guns will stand uh, in a line uh, very often you'll have maybe a couple of walking guns um and then a team of beaters so you'll have eight guns standing in front of a wood or a game cover uh, and then a team of beaters who will uh, walk around the outside and then bring the cover, whatever it is, forestry, woodland, um, game strip, towards the guns, um, where uh, generally in the UK you're looking at uh, partridges and pheasants yep. uh, being pushed over the guns uh, at varying heights. It's a very exciting way of shooting. Um, 
and um, it, it's a very different way of shooting. I've actually found a lot of my um, clients from abroad will often have uh, lessons at Glen Eagles or somewhere before they're driven to day. get into Pure, the mindset. Absolutely, of it. because they're you know very often it's the going away bird that they they're used to shooting at, and it's a very different. It's a very different mindset, I think. Uh, but that's a responsible thing to do, actually, it should be said, is if you've not done a type of shooting like that before, go and practice. Well, yeah. I, I would probably say, and I, I hold my hands up to this as well, is that before any season, we should all be doing practice. <laughs> yeah, should, because yeah. Yeah. I say that at the end of every season, God, I need to go and have some lessons. And then, I, of course, time takes over. Yeah. But uh, no, I think, I think, and also it heightens the, the enjoyment of the whole experience as well. Um, so it's it's a very uh, organised way of shooting. It's a very... Tr- traditional way of shooting in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm going to separate here uh, grouse from partridges and pheasants. Yeah. Um, I, I don't let a whole load of, lot of grouse shooting every year purely because, A, I don't have the knowledge uh, to do it. Um, I think, that, And also I think there are some people that do it very well. So if I do get an inquiry for grouse, I'll tend to go and talk to other people about it. Um, so I'll separate the two and I and I wouldn't necessarily limit... Uh, bags for grouse interestingly well it's, it's a very that, that's a wild species isn't it yeah so i think it is it is justifiably separable to reared game which is what we're what we're talking about with with pheasant and partridge which is put down and then a wild species which has a whole different type of management we, we should mention reared and put down but not put down in the way that they do in some places in the united states which is open the cage in the morning before people come yeah, I mean uh, that it's, it's that's very it's public knowledge that that's that's the way it, that's the way it's quite often yeah. done in some places there. So yeah, for our um, American, I'm not saying everyone Ameri- in the United States. We no, ju- no. we just know that that does go on. For yeah, a fact. So yeah. it is there. They are released many weeks before and quite often brought in at sort of seven weeks old, um, brought up and released many weeks before. So it, it's not sort of a dozen pheasants in a game crop which are then flushed out and killed and then free another range. dozen and then yeah it's, yeah it's more of a free range experience than that and like i said that's not to say that's how it's done everywhere but there is some of the way that it's done in the state so there is a, a bit of a difference there and i'd also i think also although that i'm i think uh although they are reared birds in inverted commas you know there's there's so many factors to a day shooting uh you know no matter how organized the estate you know you can get a wrong wind you can you can get the sun you know uh hampering a drive uh so there's a lot of skill in organizing yeah absolutely and i and i I would say that although it's a it's a fairly certain way and we can let bag sizes for a particular day actually that you know there can be little spanners in the work uh that make it uh a little bit uncertain as well, so mm-hmm. I think it's quite important to just to say that it's not. It's guaranteed. not. It's not in a barrel. Yeah, yeah it, no, I didn't yeah. want to make it sound like that. But, uh, no, yeah, especially on yeah. you know, if you've got a wind coming in, some of those birds they'll be going. You know, if it's a, a wood cover, they can be coming out every direction in front of you, and the speed that they can be coming over, and you can have a drive where you only actually hit you know four birds yes. out of out of. 200 that come out of the wood or 300 that come out of the wood so like you said sometimes it is not easy it's not i mean i grew up in uh, norfolk um and there's that famous expression the norfolk knee where we sort of get down on one knee to give it a little bit of extra height but actually i've seen <laughs> I, 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 i've seen it's in the, it's so flat there absolutely yeah. yeah uh you know i've seen uh you know so, some of the uh, i mean actually where we are is fairly undulating not compared to here but it's undulating um but uh, you know, I've seen pheasants take off, 
you know, fen pheasants, crikey. I mean, they can get off from nothing and just be stratospheric at 100 miles an hour before yeah. you even know what's happening. They've got happened. strong wings on them. I think they do, yeah. Uh, going back to what you were saying about uh, the feeling that you got from your ge- the, your guests that you were facilitating for, I thought what, one of the things that was quite interesting is what you were saying is, oh, do you, did you see that shot? Do you... Did, didn't Johnny or whoever it was take a great shot at the end of that drive? And I think that's quite an important aspect of it where it becomes, and actually this ties into what we were talking about at the start, it becomes about the experience and remembering that experience. And I think if it's really important that what you're doing is rememberable or it is memorable oh, it because otherwise be. why otherwise why are you doing it and and to some extent if you know if you start going to ridiculous numbers if you start talking about a team of guns shooting 10,000 birds which is a, a completely absurd number which is, I don't think has ever happened <laughs> but you would never ever remember you'd never remember what you were shooting at because hey, look, you know 300 <laughs> even at 300 yeah. birds i think uh, you'd struggle to remember every shot you took yeah. um uh, and and as I say, this this is my own opinion. I'm not. I don't want to force this on anyone. I don't want to, uh, you know. I, I'm I'm not being a martyr here at all. Um, and certainly that is not my intention. But I, I, I just feel that for my guests, I want them to experience the day. And I I don't believe that once you start marching, you know, two fifty, three hundred, four hundred plus, I, I think then you, you're losing part of the experience. And I think that's a shame. And I think that is shooting. Uh, I don't want to say being missold because that's that would be wrong of me to say. But I think it definitely there is an element that people are missing out on. Definitely, um, and it can become very uh, clinical, mm-hmm. like, that, a, like a machine, like, like a, a machine. Yeah. yeah. A, and again, I do. I really because there are some very very hardworking keepers and land managers out there who who will offer days uh of big big bird you know big bird de- um uh, big bag days um and i and i do not want to be seen or heard to be uh belittling what they do because some of the work they're doing is incredible but my this is my own experience is that i don't think that that people get any more out of it once you start creeping up the the bag size i really don't and that has certainly become apparent from you know i think a lot of people i've spoken to since my press release um has been that they have actually looked at what they've been doing uh you know most people i've spoken to have been around the 200 250 mark particularly in their in their syndicates where they take a day every year meet up as a as a group of friends and they've said, oh, yeah, our bags have slowly crept up as we've got older, a little bit more disposable income. Um, and uh, they're now thinking it's now going the other way, which is really interesting. And they've, they've realized that actually they look back almost with nostalgia at those days when they were sort of 20, 21, 22, scraping together the money to go and shoot sort of uh, 50 birds with their friends. Yeah, they with look eight, back with, at that with eight people, think, yeah. Yeah, and they, they, they look back and they think, actually, do you know what? I that think I great. want to go and do that again. But it is, like you said, nostalgia. It's an easy thing to do because if you've been doing it for 20 years, every year you're like, maybe we'll just up it by 50 this year or we'll up it by 100 yeah, this year. Money, yeah. 20 years later, you're now in, 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 the, in, in the, the hundreds. In, in the, the hundreds, yeah. yeah. I think there was, I, I also think that there was a, rightly or wrongly, um, I think there's also a fear that, um, you know, a lot of shoots would, particularly if you're a new set of guns, to the estate uh, that the keeper obviously wouldn't know how well you shot 
Uh, and I think there was also a sort of feeling that very often the first drive of a day could sometimes be quite heavy on numbers. And then the rest of the day becomes slightly tricky, particularly for the better teams, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, but it's because they're, they're managing it for the numbers that have uh, been purchased. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the the idea basically is to, to, to keep and get a gauge on what's what the guns are like for a start, and then the rest of the day can follow suit from there. Because, you know, there are some days where, uh, you know, you might think, crikey, actually, we probably need to... Uh, not tone it down, but sort of we will need to go and shoot that drive. And he might turn around and say, oh my God, okay, these guys, let's take them up into the, up into the uh, sort of hills and put some, uh, put some higher birds over them. Um, and I, and I kind of, it was that sort of sneaking suspicion. I think that people were, wanted to make a day of it. And I, I think there was, and I just wonder whether the, the bag sizes certainly as these guys progressed, uh, and their bag sizes got bigger. It was, just trying was an to element push of, the day out. A bit. Exactly, yeah, and and, and it was interesting because a syndicate that I've I've done quite a lot with in the past. That's definitely why their bag went up to two hundred from a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred, was because they felt that the last drive was normally a bit light, mm-hmm. and they thought, well, hang on, wait, if we push the bag up a bit, then we can end on a on a high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And So I wonder if there's an element of that going on. But yeah, it could be. I, I never really thought of it that yeah. way. But I mean, it's such a hard, as a, as a gamekeeper running a day, it's such a hard balance oh, to get, to try and <laughs> um, spread the the shooting throughout a day in a way with the weather conditions, with, like you said, with the the, the ability of the guns that there, it, it is an extremely hard task. Oh, it's incredible. People, hard. a lot of people never think about that. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that job yeah. for love nor money. I mean, the, uh, you know, to, to, to get it right, particularly as I've also seen guns arrive uh, a little bit like an away sort of rugby team arriving. They play really badly in the first half, second <laughs> half. They suddenly do really well and they keep going, no, by plans. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, that can happen. Um, but no, I, I it was a purely personal decision uh, and a decision also based on uh, the impression I was getting from my, my clients, uh, frankly. I, I think one of the other things it does is it, and we we talked about this uh, in some of our social media posts uh, fairly recently, is that it brings back a much closer connection with um, killing what you eat, or eat, eating what you kill, rather that way around. Is that if you are um, shooting very very big days, you couldn't possibly consume all of what you're shooting personally. Now that's not to say that on every shoot you're going to take away uh, everything that everything that you eat because there is a there is a market for it although this year a very difficult market um for game. But for me and this is just um a personal take take on shooting is I find it difficult uh in the situation of um pheasants uh, pheasants and partridges to shoot way more than I would want to put in my freezer. I mean, that's just a personal take on it. But when you're looking at eight to 10 guns shooting 100 per day or 150 per day, that makes perfect sense to me because you could, and I'm sure that no keeper would object to it, say, you know, would you mind if I took home the 10 birds that I shot? And they're going to, you know, very gladly give you your, give you your few brace and you're going to take that home. Absolutely. And so there, for me, there is much more of a connection which has been very distorted by big days because it's it's lost there is no connection and quite often uh you find that uh, and again this is me uh, person personally speaking of my impression of ver- lots of dead birds on the ground at the end of the day is that there's maybe not appreciation of of what's gone on um if you bring the the bag size down 
it is much more close to the connection of I'm going to shoot it, I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to eat it because it is possible to to actually consume those personally. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think you know it's um, between the four of us at home. I've got two small boys, uh, Claire, my wife, and myself. You know, we will we will eat uh, two pheasants between us, four breasts. Mm. Uh, you know, with all the different ways you can cook it, it's becoming. I think that the joy is at the moment as there seems to be a massive. Uh, sort of revival in cooking game and actually yeah, is, not just traditionally cooking it's been game, fantastic that. it's just sort of um goujons yeah. uh things like that and i i think that's really exciting i think the as that gradually takes off and there's been a lot of hard work done by council alliance and, and basque on this and various others um uh promoting game but i think it's people still have a sort of slightly traditional roast opinion of it mm-hmm. but actually if you can do some fun stuff with it my boys love it um and i think if i'd cooked it and if I roasted a pheasant, they probably wouldn't be that so much keen on it. So I think the uh, the connection between the smaller days and uh, taking it home and cooking it, that connection hopefully will will be building as uh, as as the. I think it will. Yeah. I think it will help that uh, actual personal consumption of of what you should. Pheasant eat. curry. Pheasant curry. Pheasant curry. And uh, yeah. uh, one of our listeners, Paul Wilkie, he made uh, pheasant burgers. Brilliant idea. Actually, there's a very good. There's something on Facebook, uh, game for the table. Yes, I think. it's just a group, it's a group yeah. and it, it's about the, the only thing where actually I actually get notifications for because people are doing some really cool, yeah. fun stuff with yeah, their with their food, and also you can go onto it and ask questions. Right, I've got some. I think some geese burgers. I saw someone making the other yeah. day, goose burgers, and uh, uh, no, I think that connection is 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 very important, and you know, even t- you know, I've seen some people uh, on social media recently who've obviously had quite big day shooting and the back of their car is heaving with uh, with pheasants mm. you know they just filled it up taking it home uh dressing it and and freezing it but I, that's fantastic which I mean, is brilliant. That, that's what i want to see more of i mean i've got if you're if you know that you have um a consumption or you can give it out to friends then in a way it kind of counters shooting shooting more I think that a lot of the um, the enjoyment aspect of it that that is part of it for me. It is the end result as well. It is the taking it home. It is the cooking it. It is the being able to give a brace of friends uh, to, to your neighbours next door, or at the brace a brace of friends, a brace of pheasants <laughs> to your friends to the uh, or to the the neighbours next door. That is all part of the whole experience. Absolutely. Um, and if you've got a place, then you know happily shoot more birds if you've got a place to, to take them like that um, because that connection is there and I, it is you know, adding to the whole experience it is but I, you know I think I, I, the, the uh, sort of game eating game that whole sort of link that whole journey that you go through when you get up in the morning um, and you go shooting fishing stalking whatever you're doing um, I think the process doesn't end when you're standing in the larder having a dram with the stalker or uh, when you're having your cup of tea at the end of the day shooting the process hasn't ended there and I think certainly for me interestingly I reckon in the last two years I hadn't appreciated this I hadn't actually appreciated that actually the whole journey and I think it was having Harry my eldest son come through and learning how to shoot and actually teaching him the whole process that I realized actually the journey is not over then the journey is you know you've then got the preparation you've then got the cooking uh 
uh, I can't say that I'm a very good cook and my wife would kill me if I said that I was uh, or actually partook in much of it. But certainly I dress the birds and get them ready and then um, her and Harry will sit there and make goujons and, and, and things like that. And that that is an extension of the whole process, um, as you've as you've just said. Is mm. Harry going to do an article on cooking? Uh, he's just done one. It's in the recent that's Field the Sports one. Is that the no. one that's yeah, the, yeah. we didn't. We, I hadn't a chance to read that one, but I, I, I showed it to. I didn't realize that one was so on. Uh, it's brilliant. No, so he, yeah, he went to go and see a um, uh, a friend actually, who's just set up a, a sort of lifestyle business um, that uh, is all about batch cooking, which is something that's very prevalent in the United States. Um, she is from a um, a very sporting family, so has a lot of game. Um, so she taught Harry how to make these goujons, and then what you can do. So if you had, I don't know, forty pheasants, breasted them, made the goujons, you can actually go all the way to breading them, cook them, and then you can put them in the freezer because you've changed the, you've cooked them. You can put them in the freezer and then warm them up whenever you need them. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of uh, batch cooking. I think is basically a uh, forward planning. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you cook all your meals in one. Um, and I think for 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 game sh- shooting and shooting, you know, if we can uh, sort of take that message on board and actually, you know, prolong the life of the game all the way through till next season, so much the better. And actually, you know, as I was saying to you when I arrived, I need to buy another chess freezer because uh, <laughs> for it's just for all the game. And actually, if you can do different things with it, it's awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that is my main mission by the time I get to the end of January is to make sure that I've got enough game in the freezer to see me through to August. <laughs> that, <laughs> exactly. That, I mean, there's a little bit of leeway there because there's still deer seasons open. Uh, but in terms of, I need variety. I can't just eat venison 365 <laughs> yeah. days of the year. Is to make sure that I have process enough. And hence the reason why you've seen the last of the, the season hanging up Absolutely. in the garage. Uh, but I, I, I love it. Yeah, it's uh, Encouraging people to eat more game, you know, that that is a good thing. It's very important, but I mean, I, I think also the um, you know go, going back to the bag sizes. Um, as I said, it is a it's a personal decision I've made, but um, I I do think that as as a, an industry, as a community, uh, because it's both. Um, you know, we are we are a community of people who shoot, stalk, fish. We hunt, um, and we're also an industry because there is money at the heart. There are jobs, there are employment. I mean, it's all intrinsic. There's you know a lot of very good uh, conservation schemes that are uh, funded individually on estates, and you know research being funded by shooters um, that perhaps we we do take stock and 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 look at what we're doing as an industry, um, and and make sure that our our clients, our guests, our um, fellow shooters are enjoying it how I believe it should be enjoyed. Um, and as I said, this is I. I'm not. I don't want to be preaching, um, but you know that connection of getting involved with it. The day is not a clinical day. You're not standing there in your immaculate tweeds uh, at the, in a field, uh, never seeing a beater, and just having clouds of birds come over you, mm-hmm. and, and the bag is whatever it is. But actually, having the connection with it all to take it home, eat it, but also remember remembering the birds that you shot and 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 sort of being very much part of the day. It needs to be more than targets in the sky. Absolutely, it needs to be because it is far far more than that. Um, which which interestingly is uh, on your last podcast with Owen Williams is something you discussed 
regarding we Woodcock, Woodcock and, mm. the, and I think your it's, yeah, friend up, here, up the road, yeah. um, who, you know, st- stopped shooting Woodcock because he decided that a lot of his guns were seeing them as another target, which they're not at all. They are a Woodcock. They are a very special species, as are all game species. But, um, you know, if you, if you want to go and shoot one, go and look for one, go and hunt it. And I think... Uh, that's also very important. Yeah, it, yeah. it is a sort of a shift in in mindset there. Um, you know, hunt things because you want to hunt them, not just because it's another target in the yeah. sky. And that is something which will is going to come much more into view, I th- I believe, as the the will for uh, larger bag sizes diminishes down to smaller bag sizes because you have that connection. And, and interestingly, um, and I was I was telling you this earlier just before we started recording was that um, the same estate up the road there has started this year processing their entire bag uh, after every shoot. And they process it into to vacuum-packed um, breaths. And they've basically had no surplus because the guns have been f- gladly filling their boots with you know, 10, what would, what would be the equivalent of 10 to 20 pheasants, with this ready to go, ready to go in the freezer after, and any surplus, you know, the, the beaters can t- take what they want. And I thought that that was a, a brilliant way to just tick over the end part of the the process, where possibly as a gun you might not have the time, you might be away the next day, yeah. and that way you can go home and stick that straight in the freezer. And it it was just a, a, an example of responsibility from that estate to say, here we've got a, a bit of an issue with actually being able to um, get rid of the game in terms of game dealers picking up. Everybody knows that this year it's been quite difficult in terms of surplus of game this year. So they took it on board, processed the game, and they've had no surplus. So they, they fixed the issue that they had where game dealers, they were going to take it away and process it. It was going to go into the food chain. That was no problem, but they weren't going to get any money for it. So they thought, well, instead of us not getting anything for it, let's us... Not well. It's actually it cost them cost money them because money. they they ended up having yeah. to process it. But let's try and help this whole circle by giving the guns the breasted uh, pheasant at the end of the day. And uh, I think next year they're going to add a quid onto a bird and uh, tell the guns that's the reason. And I'm sure there will not be any objections to that. I think that's I think that's a brilliant idea, really yeah. great idea. I'm also amazed that uh, uh, having having been a student uh, of sorts, uh, that students haven't cottoned on to this very, very inexpensive <laughs> meat that they could probably they probably be given. Uh, yeah. that's always amazed me that they haven't cottoned on to it. And uh, you know, we're not sort of sending lorry loads of uh, sort of uh, red cross parcels. Maybe to- maybe student packs. Student is the game. way for student um, game, yeah. and uh, cheap as chips, That's, and uh, yes. we can feed students because let's like face it, like you said, they students like to eat cheap, absolutely, <laughs> regardless of what it is. Yeah, maybe we're missing a trick there. <laughs> yeah. um, going from uh, uh, bag sizes to the prevalence of high birds, it's become something that it's being talked about quite a lot. There's an increase in. Um, shoots specifically targeting this is a, a high bird shoot where do you think that sort of sort of sits or or i mean you could maybe tackle it from the point of view of the will of the people who have, have come to you to say can you please organize shooting for me what are the, what are they looking for yeah I, th- I mean i don't have the skill personally to to shoot at a lot of the places um that offer the super high birds i just so i wouldn't shoot there because i don't have the skill um, to shoot at them, but what are what do people want from what you've seen? It's a funny one because I 
I think everyone wants to, you know, the, the idea of booking a high bird day is is still a still very much to the fore, and it's something I hear quite a bit of. But having said that, I think a lot of people have done it, realised that they either don't have the equipment or they're just not up to the task. I mean, you know, you see some of these high bird shots who are incredible to what I mean. It's unbelievable watching some of these guys shoot. Oh, but they're phenomenally skilled. But they, you know, they've done it for a hell of a long time and they've got the equipment. That, that I think, is half the battle. You know, if I turn up somewhere with my 16 bore and uh, sort of old English side by side, I simply, I'm not going to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm just not going to be up to the job. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick the, the, the uh, least high bird that I can find. Um, but I think, again, you know, I think shooting does have its... Um, I don't want to say fads. It's you know there are things that sort of come around every now and then, and I think perhaps both big bags and high birds have been done. And I think people uh, prefer to see what you know when they're shooting. They like to see the bird falling behind them. But some of these high bird shoots, you know, you can kill a bird, but it falls, it falls so way far back. Behind. You can't, and you may not have even realised you'd done it, and mm. it's picked up dead behind. Uh, but quite a long way behind by the pickers up. And I, I, again, it comes back to that whole connection of saying, oh, that was an amazing shot, you know, um, or, or just being quietly proud of yourself and giving yourself a pat on the back when you do shoot a high bird. But yeah, I, 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 my favourite type of shoot is one that provides uh, normal birds with the odd screamer added in. Uh, so, you know, every drive, there'll be a couple of birds that come out that everyone will have a crack at. Everyone will probably miss them. Uh, but then they're, you know, shooting birds that they're remembering. Yeah, and uh, within sort of normal range. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think it's something that, for the people who have the, the the skill and the equipment to do it, just as you said, fine. But I don't think it's something we should be encouraging people to just do because it's fashionable to go... Because the vast majority... We have to remember that we're shooting at living things. Yeah, these are these are animals, so it's not just ah oh, ah oh well ah oh well never mind. You know we do have a responsibility to the best of our ability to you know do a, a good job and a good clean ethical job. Well, I think you know, I, it, it, these are, these are not clay pigeons. They're not clay pigeons. I think I think that that rule of thumb applies across all field sports. Of course it does. Uh, yeah. And you know, I again will hold up my hand to this. You know, I've been out stalking many a time and been wheezing by the time I've got to the top of the hill. And I think again, I had a, you know, I have a responsibility. We all have a responsibility to make sure that we're fit uh, and able to get into the, be put into the firing point by the stalker, or if you're uh, stalking by yourself, get yourself there. You're not winded. You know, you you can take your shot confidently without sort of breathing, you know, <laughs> and up and down. The crosshair and, and, uh, wobbling around absolutely. into the sky. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I think I think we all, as, as um, uh, shooting, stalking, fishing people, have a responsibility to make sure that what we're doing is within our ability. Absolutely. And actually, I think that when we do venture out of that, and we there's no harm in pushing yourself, but I think if you push yourself too far, uh, you actually end up not enjoying what you're doing. Uh, and it is as simple as that. I, I had a great friend who uh, turned up, um, was shooting some partridges in the borders. Um, and I think he's a good shot as well. Uh, very good shot. 
Um, but he went up to the keeper at the end. Of, I think they'd been quite, uh, quite sort of vocal uh, in the morning uh, at, at the meeting place, and the uh, he went up to the keeper after the first drive and said, "Right, you've made your point." Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think I think you know, and he realised that actually, if he was going to enjoy the day, you know, he wanted to be under something that he knew he could absolutely. Yeah, that he could he yeah, could kill efficiently. Absolutely. And again, we're not talking about numbers here. This is this is killing the bird. Yeah. Um and um it, it it is important. I don't think that gets talked about enough because because it's up there in, in the sky, yeah, it's there is a bit of a disconnect until it's on the ground yeah. and, and dead. And yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've probably have been, when when I was younger was certainly guilty of it, where you, I just didn't have the skill set, no knowledge. You go there and you're shooting at stuff in in the sky because it's it's there, and you're hoping that you are going to kill it and that you're going to take it home at the end of the day. But it's kind of a on a prayer, <laughs> and I, I think we do definitely have a responsibility as shooters to try to to be better at what we do because. It is a living thing. Uh, and this kind of came home to... Sorry, Doc. I was just going to say, and if you really want to just shoot stuff, now a lot of the states do offer complete simulated days. That's yeah. just what I was going to say. <laughs> where, where it is the same drives, you're standing at pegs. Yeah, there's no one flushing because that would be a bit pointless. Uh, or picking up. <laughs> <laughs> or picking up all the full picking clouds up, yes. behind you. But the, the My di- dog will get it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the day is set up in exactly the same way. So you're still going for for you know lunch and you're still having your morning like everything is identical apart from you're shooting clays and they're still very challenging because they're being flung out from well three machines absolutely and and you're still as a shooter you're still putting money into the estate and the work that they do by doing that and that came home to it's the first time i've actually ever done it in a it was actually it wasn't on an estate as such but it was kind of a rough farm shoot so you you don't expect to shoot many in the day i think the bag was it was 24 20 people i think uh which which is great it's the kind of day that i love but at the end of the day uh the the chap there kevin who was running the shoot he had hired um a a setup for a for flush and everybody lined up in this gully and we shot a flush for you know an hour and a half and all the kids had a chance to have a go with a bit of instruction and it it was fantastic and i was shooting this flush of clays and i thought this is this is brilliant. I'm having a chance to shoot. I love to shoot. You know, I like to pull the Letting, trigger and it yeah. go bang, just like I do with the rifle. I, I spend a lot of time on the range because I get enjoyment out of shooting rather than than hunting. But shooting and hunting are two different things. Hunting involves something that's living. Shooting is on inanimate things like clay pigeons or yeah. steel targets. So I got a, f- a fantastic amount of enjoyment out of doing the shooting of simulated what would be a simulated drive. But there was no, and I never felt the need at that point. Like oh, I wish it was pheasants in the sky, and tailing that on the end of a, a rough day, I thought was a great way to to fulfill both things. Idea. You know, yeah. I've done a lot. Of, I'd get a chance to get my enjoyment out of the shooting, yeah. and I've done my hunting in the morning. It's yeah. awesome. It also and I mean, really loved it. it also, I mean, you know what? I'd, that, I'd never thought that's really. Well, cool. there you go. There's the that's next it, thing you yeah. can start offering your You'll clients. Me marketing that yeah. scene. <laughs> it, it means that as well. If you know. Uh, if you've not had a particularly good day yourself, it means you still get a chance at the end of the day to to finish your day and on practice. a high and it's, practice and for practice. the next time. Yeah. But actually, you've hit the nail on the head, Kate, right? Because actually, so often, even no matter what the bag is, you know, you can very often be out of the shooting, and that's just luck of the draw. That's the way yeah. it goes. So you're absolutely right. If you have been out of the shooting, it means that you can then let your shots off. And uh, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I, I think we're going to see more of that. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that the states will, because uh, a lot of them actually have. 
like quite good clay sh- shooting facilities anyway because you know quite often the only other state might like to go and shoot clay so they'll yeah i know a few that don't do it commercially but they have fairly good clay setups and i think a lot more states probably will start to do that especially as you know if we do see a shift in what people want because it's a, it's a market it's supply and demand if if there's a, a will to shoot large days then someone is going to offer it if generally speaking the market's like you know i want to shoot 150 per days then you're going to have more of those days but there is going to be a bit of a gap there so i'm pretty sure states will so start there we are that. next season we're going to see you offering 100 bird days with 100 clays at the yeah, end of the absolutely day. there we go yeah. it's like a half and half mix half and half but it's uh no it's it's interesting that that's because we've got a place called hall rule just just that near us at home it's like it operates all around the the village where we we live um and their business has slowly been getting busier and busier and busier and they they offer the whole package so it is essentially like a driven day shooter yeah well with 11s and with 11s and, I mean, yeah. they literally i mean their, their hospitality is is fantastic and it it's really interesting and also i think it's a great way of uh, as you said practice so i think they get quite busy in the run-up to the uh, shooting be. season but that's great is, that people are doing that yeah yeah i, I think very it's important uh, and can be done all throughout the year so well, absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um, one thing I, I did want to touch on was the idea that, or, or maybe the, the misperception of what's being discussed right now around the, the big bag shooting is that estates that offer big bags, uh, big bags are bad, and estates that offer smaller bags are good just by virtue of that fact. But I, I know that that's certainly not what you're saying, and we've discussed it before, is that it doesn't mean that. A lot of these estates are doing a lot of great things behind the scenes. It's just the the actual the shooting aspect of it and the, and the personal aspects and the experience and everything that we've been I think, about. I think for that's probably very very important to make yeah. to make clear about this discussion. Is that absolutely no point do I want to uh, force uh, my own personal decision onto anybody else? Because as you quite rightly say, uh, an estate offering big bags can be absolutely fa- you know amazing for the environment great conservation work going on um as as much as a smaller shoot and i think that, that i'm not making that's a not the, that's that, not the that connection absolutely yeah. not what i'm saying yeah. and i think that 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 message is is quite important mm-hmm. to sort of caveat this whole discussion with that no i am purely looking at this from what i believe my clients how they will best be served and the best that they will get out of the day is by bringing the bag sizes down and I know that they will walk away chatting, you know, when they're having dinner in the evening, you know, they will be talking about the day, about the individual birds, about particular shots, about the birds that they missed. Whereas I slightly get the impression, you know, when I have clients over that the, it tends to revolve around the bag. So if it's a big day, there's not so much in-depth chat. They probably haven't enjoyed the day any less than their their counterparts but definitely the experience is very different mm. very different mm. um and that's what i want for my my guess is uh is that experience where how do you see us as a a shooting community sorry let me correct that how do you see us as a hunting community going forward i mean this is one aspect of field sports amongst many that a lot of people enjoy but how, how do you see us going forward with with this particular I almost don't want to call it an issue, but it kind of has become an issue about big bags, the way it's being discussed. I mean, ha- what do you see the future being? I mean, we've probably touched on a little bit of it, but what is your viewpoint of, of where we need to take it? 
Uh, because, I mean, it's not just, this isn't just talking about it insular within the hunting community. We've got to remember that we're, we're operating in a world that is increasingly critical of people who hunt and shoot. Yeah, and actually, I think I th- I think this conversation is is uh, very exciting, and I think, as you have said to me earlier, this is this is probably the beginnings of a wider discussion uh, amongst the the uh, hunting fraternity um, about how we go about our business, and I think that it actually opens so many doors uh, for us as a an industry, as a community, um, to not better ourselves at all because that's completely wrong, but to, to to look at the other avenues we can go down, it'll open so many doors uh, for us. Um, it'll also, I think, provide estates with um, estates and, and shoots with uh, other revenue avenues um, because I think you can, you know, you can run a 200 per day um, and then off the back of that, if you've got the ability to run a smaller day for 50, actually you then get, Two bookings shoots. instead of one. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you let 150, you know, 100, 150 per day to a set of guns, uh, and they've travelled up. You know, a lot of my clients come for guests come from the from London uh, to the borders. You know, it's quite a long way. Come up on the Thursday night, driven day, Saturday, a nice little sort of rough day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think it, I think it's really exciting, and I think it also uh, lends itself to sitting easier with the non-hunting public i think it'll i think it'll sit better there uh, and that's not saying that it should because as we've said earlier big bags doesn't necessarily mean bad practice and that absolutely doesn't but i think mean that. probably the, the 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 public's um viewpoint on the individual people shooting whether whether we like it or not quite often the way that they view hunting is because they're looking at an individual person. If you look at like the the big issues with big game hunting in Africa and the the way the public zone in, they never look at the big picture, which is what 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 is the the actual hunting management of that area. They're looking at the individual person and what does that person do. And I think that a, a shift towards you know, what you've been suggesting as an individual person, it's much easier to have that conversation with somebody who doesn't know anything about hunting. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, and I think that's very important. But yeah, I, I, I think the future of uh, hunting uh, in the UK, uh, you know, it's constantly evolving. It has, it's, it's been evolving. It's gone sort of round in circles, maybe. You know, with regards to uh, fashion of bag sizes or height. You know, go back to the Victorian era again. They were pretty focused on on the size of the oh, bag. Yeah, big the time. Word, this the is, word this record, is not you, is it? It's the not word you. record is is a sort of coronic a common occurrence and i think it then tailed off again maybe uh over the wars and and afterwards into the 50s actually i, I was thinking I, might, I would love to go back and have a look at my grandfather's shooting diaries of sort of the 1950s and 60s to see because he interestingly he did quite a bit of commercial shooting and i would love to see what the bag sizes were then uh, and what what they were doing my f- feeling is having if i can think about a big day was about 200 uh 250 then um but i think we 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 do go in cycles uh but i also think that and i hope that hunting in uh the uk has a has a really exciting future and a really positive future as well yeah uh, i you know, a lot of people say 
or look back at the way things were done, not so much in in this aspect of, of field sports and the sort of driven shooting, but just hunting in generally and globally. And, you know, wasn't it great back in the day? Wasn't it great 50 years ago? Uh, but I kind of view today as extremely exciting because I don't believe, apart from a few exceptions, there's been any point in history, certainly in the UK, to really make a difference and shape hunting for the future the way it is right now. We're, we are in a really difficult spot, globally speaking, with regard to hunting and how it's perceived by the public. And I don't think we've ever been in a position where what we do right now will shape it for the future. Uh, and I, I hope that we realize that. I hope that people realize that it, it does actually matter, the decisions that we take that we take now and the way that we, we shape and frame what we do, what is important to us as as hunters and as a community of hunters. Absolutely. I, th- I think the next two years are, are, are going to be key to that, to the, to the whole future of it. Um, uh, and if, if we all do it right and we do it together, um, then we should have no need to worry. Um, so, yeah. Now, to to slightly change the topic, I, I need to ask you, but I need to look at what's on your uh, uh, your Gila first. Your Game Change Scotland, yeah, uh, is obviously a part of part of your business. But what what is it exactly? I should really know this. I should have looked. No, it up no, no, you come, no. But you're, no tell our listeners. So uh, I um, I worked for a chap called Peter Johnson who set up uh, the train shooting safaris in uh, Africa. Oh, uh, is this the the famous with with Rovos Rail? Yes, so yeah, he, Rovos he Rail. had a company called Game Bird Southern Africa. Uh, and they used to charter the Rovos rail train, Famous, which is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and go travel up sort of shooting and hunting as, as they went. Um, and he uh, came over to the UK. And of course, we've got in Scotland the Royal Scotsman, yeah. which is run by the Belmont Group, who also operate Orient Express. And uh, what I do is I charter the train uh, the sort of general format is that we start at uh, Glen Eagles, uh, where tends to be Canadian, American, and a lot of South African clients, actually. We come over and we uh, teach them driven shooting at Glen Eagles. And the so this is at the clay, clay ground there? At the clay ground yeah. there, yeah. And they also stay, again, great for the non-shooting members of the party because Amazing there's no other... Amazing facilities, I know, yeah. absolutely. And uh, then we get the... The train comes to pick us up. I must just say that the Royal Scotsman is the carriages, mm-hmm. not the engine. Okay. Um, and that's quite important because a number of people turn up thinking that they're going to see the Royal <laughs> Scotsman. Uh, sorry, the uh, the Flying, flying Scotsman. Scotsman. Uh, no, this but is it, the, it, it's not a steam train. It's not, no, it's a diesel. It's a diesel. Uh, if, you, if you've got particularly deep pockets, we, we could <laughs> you get could you. Get, you we could, could get you. I was going to say, it's not... <laughs> I, I was just picturing there because, one, there isn't... I think there's maybe two functioning in the yeah, UK I, that are on our tracks. On the tracks. I think it would be... Uh, yeah, that would be a pretty special trip, I think, if we could pull the, that on. The, the Jacobite. That's the one. That's uh, yeah, so that runs um, to Fort William. Fort William, yeah. Because yeah. um, I've seen it where I live. I live a bit further away. There's a, a railway bridge. And I would say once every three months, I see the steam train coming up. That's amazing. Up, up here. It is, it, you know, yeah. there's something spectacular about it. I, so you need to try and time go, it. Go, you go, need go, to try and time it so you can get a picture. I know. Yeah. Just going off on a little thing here. I was um, I watched a program about trains. Yeah, they're quite fascinating little things, or big things. And they were talking about the steam train and how efficient they've now made it with modern technology compared to your diesel train, that um, obviously, or electric that runs now. Um, and they were basically just saying how damn good these trains actually are now. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> Burning coal. 
Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, just because of, you know, obviously they refined it so well because trains built this country and the world. Yeah. Uh, and they've refined it so well with modern technology and the way they've designed it. It's just so efficient, this train. Hmm. Um, and they were talking about... This is a steam train. Uh, the steam train, yeah. and they were also talking about how... Uh, people actually like the steam train more than your traditional uh, train anyway. And that's one of the reasons why they built it is because there was just this need where everyone was like, actually, we'd, something like, we'd, nostalgic yeah, yeah, uh, we'd like a steam train. Yeah. <laughs> we want a steam train. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it, I think it is harking back to a sort of uh, years gone by. And I think that um, uh, train travel and field sports have always gone hand in hand, particularly since sort of Victorian times, yeah. uh, where you've got that very famous going north coming south yes uh, pictures but we kind of reenacted that when we did the Rigby you uh, did absolutely the film will be out very soon Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that Um, the um, uh, yes because they went from London on the yeah we went went from from London took up the overnight sleeper it looked like quite an entertaining team you had with you as well was there much sleep got on the train Actually, everybody was very well behaved. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> mostly, mostly, mostly. Well very disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and again, I think Selena Barr, who is part of that um, yeah. that whole team, you know, she did a an article where she got the sleeper to Rannoch uh, from London, uh, stepped off the train in her in her tweeds, and and was up up on the hill before she knew what was happening. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, there is a there's something there, and particularly. The reason why I think it works in Scotland, the train trip, is because, you know, a lot of clients, they'll come over, they'll fly over for three or four days and they'll do some shooting and they'll be staying in a hotel or a private house. And that's the sum of their Scottish experience. Whereas uh, Belmond, uh, who run Royal Scotsman, you know, the, the, the train goes to Glen Eagles, then we go all the way up, we shoot at Rillier, um, we've shot, we've gone all the way up to Wick, um, oh, so I didn't and, realize you went that far north. Oh yeah, yeah. So we've been up to. Wait. I'd love to take it out to the west coast one day, um, uh, and then back down, and then uh, so we went up the A9 almost all the way up north, and then came back down via uh, Keith Aberdeen uh, down, down the east coast. Uh, I yeah. didn't realize to what extent you could tailor this journey. So you're obviously hiring the carriages. I didn't realize how this worked, and you're telling the train, "I want to do this." Yeah, route. The, the only the the, the key uh, points to this are really what they call the stabling. Stations, so the stations where the train can stop without being on the main line. Okay, and there are there are aren't many of those. There's Botogarson, which I think is actually a private private line, but it's connected to the main line. So we can go down there, and we can we can be there for as long as we want. Uh, Keith, similarly, I think it's the end of a end of a um, you know sideline, uh, so we can be there for as long, which is brilliant because you've obviously got the distilleries. Um, but also the other great thing about it is that. Um, we can uh, Belmond have a team on on the train who, and they have an itinerary and lots of contacts. So I mean, some of the some of my guns have come back and said, "Uh, yeah, I think tomorrow I might go with the non-shooting uh, team." <laughs> you know, because we went to Culloden so one. Do you time. stay on the train? Stay you? on the train. Yeah. So yeah. there are there are uh, accommodation carriages, yeah. um, uh, which are very comfortable. Uh, it's all wooden paneling. Um, they are actually relatively new. Um, stock, if that makes sense. I think yeah. I think two guys bought them twenty years ago or however long ago and did them up, and then subsequently Belmond have ended up 
buying them. I think they mm. might have changed hands a couple of times. But anyway, um, so they're, they're sort of modern carriages with a sort of posh old, interior. Old, I mean, rustic kind of feel, oh, but they're modern. Modern, yeah, modern old. It must be an amazing experience. It is yeah. an amazing experience. And the whole, actually the whole business, because it's not one you really come across, you know, that, that train right now, when oh, it'd be, be back together now because they, they tend to start in April, uh, will have been completely stripped out, everything taken apart, and then rebuilt again um, for the coming season because obviously you've got water tanks in there, you've got all sorts that uh, need... It's an amazing, amazing sort of thing going on there. But the other great thing is that um, although we are confined by the tracks, um, you know, we can we do have a degree of flexibility. I do get quite bossy with my guests on occasion. I'm like, right, guys, literally no more tea. You're getting in those cars and we have to go because if we miss the train, well, we've then got to, get, we've then got to chase it to try and hopefully catch up with it. It hasn't happened yet, touch wood. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so I have to get quite bossy with them. Um, and I had one team who uh, just re- referred to me, I think, by the end of the week as, you've got five minutes. That's what I was known as. <laughs> Um, no, that is. Uh, well, I, I must make a point of trying to have a look at some of your pictures and, and yeah. that from it because what it looks like unique, an amazing experience. Unique experience. Yeah. It's very good. And sadly, I, I sort of didn't get uh, Peter Johnson, whose brainchild it was, the the whole shooting from a train uh, idea. Uh, sadly, passed away four years ago, um, and uh, I sort of took it on from there. Um, I don't do anything in Africa, but the uh, so I'm sort of running it. Um, uh, off the back of that, basically, and it, I'm assuming it's popular. Uh, do you know what I? I I will admit I've made a bit of a mistake. I was marketing it to uh, very sort of keen shooting people. I was speaking to the sporting press. I was speaking to uh, you know the field, the people like that, Field Sports Magazine. But actually, what it is, it's a, it's more of a lifestyle trip for people who want to experience Scotland and they want to experience shooting. So you want it in country, have, country living magazine. Yeah, exactly. That's really yeah. where I need yeah. to be. Um, and, you know, so, and I think a lot of the keen shooting uh, uh, um, lot were, wanted to spend their money on the, on the shooting, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily on the whole package. All the periphery stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the shooting, when you look at the sort of finances of it, are sort of, minuscule whereas the whole package is yeah you know it, it, it's quite big so i have made a bit of an error there but i'm i'm working on that to market it and again will be but because of my own um belief and and in the enjoyment of a day shooting the the bags will still be limited to so, uh, yeah the ones tied the, of the estates that you sort well, of tag yeah, in so it'll be yeah. 200 but you know we will be working within that 200 bag uh limit that i've set myself mm-hmm. um but uh, I, d- I think something else that I, I think really interesting is that about five years ago, I had a, four years ago, I had a client who from America who uh, stop me if I'm boring you. No, no, uh, no please who, carry on. Who wanted to do several very large days shooting from the train. So I sort of scratched my head, and at that point, I needed to do the trip. So, <laughs> so I phoned around and I and I spoke to some of the more likely suspects uh, from between Edinburgh and, and Wick about whether this was feasible. And you know what? Four of the five that I tried turned around to me and said, no, Charlie, look, we, we don't, we're not interested in, in letting bags of that size. You know, we'll, we'll let your 200 bird day and there might be a few overages, uh, you know, 50 
overages, but we're not going to go to the level that you're asking for. And I turn around, and this is probably where this whole thing about bag limits for, for my company came in and start the seed was sown. Um, because I suddenly turned around and I asked one of them, you know, why, you know, why are you limiting yourself? And he said, well, purely because, A, we a little bit like me, we don't feel that guests get any more or less out of it by shooting more. But also, I think, when the public look in at what we're doing, they need to see that we're doing it sensibly and not, you know, it's not too outrageous. So and this was the viewpoint from the estates. Yeah, and this was three years ago. Yeah. Um, and there were some really well-known estates. That I, I mean, that's great. That's fantastic. That, that's what I would kind of expect. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I, can't, I can't, you know, you said uh, very kindly that I was one of the first agents to sort of put, put it publicly out there. But actually, I would say that in Scotland particularly, and I think this is probably fairly unique to Scotland, that we have been, uh, as a sort of shooting industry, looking at this. Kind of without knowing it, it's almost without had like a bit of self-regulation yeah, without really actually, talking yeah. about it. Uh, whereas I think maybe in other parts of the UK, uh, there hasn't been the need, possibly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we do have uh, a devolved government here who look at things in a very, very different way to Westminster. Uh, so we are sort of i think we as an industry have 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 switched on to that and have have reacted to it mm -hmm. which is great and sort of taken i think we are increasingly taking a look at ourselves and what we're doing as a result of that which is no bad thing yeah oh no it's i think it's a great thing um and i think it works i think it works from from everyone's point of view actually most importantly the the guest the the person who's at the end uh, holding holding the gun at the end so, are you going to be busy now from now to the next season? Uh, yeah, what do you, what yeah, do you, what do you, you do? Are you just taking booking? Booking? I do nothing. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> I, just, I just go <laughs> just around. Just go fishing now. Just, yeah, exactly. Just go fishing. Uh, yeah, so now I'll be uh, promoting shooting for next year. Um, and uh, I'm always promoting. Actually, it's a, it's a 12 month sort of cycle because there's always something happening you know there's either some stalking or there's obviously some all the game fairs as well coming up all the so. game fairs coming up. actually f f interestingly for the game fairs i end up um doing bits and pieces for claire um i thought you were going to say interestingly i end up drinking whiskey <laughs> with uh, yeah well that, uh, does she does she have a stand at some of the yeah fairs? she does yeah no she's uh you know ever evolving ever you know, I'm going down to the to the uh, northern shooting show uh, to to have a little scout for her uh, to see what that's about. Because crikey, we keep on hearing about it. It keeps on cropping up, and it's one that neither of us have been to. But you know, certainly the game fairs are very important. Uh, the London Fly Fishing Fair and, and Wing Shooting Fair that's coming up. That seems to be gathering momentum. Mm -hmm. I, you go, did you guys go? We, we just got asked uh, by I think it was the organizer just the other day. But we, we go, it, but. it starts the day that we come back with. Uh, Johnny. Ah, <laughs> very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so well, not, not this year. I'll yeah. feed back to you. Yeah, how, yeah. Okay. But last year, what I really loved about it is that, it, although it was purely fishing last year, uh, was the fact that it was a chance for the industry to get together, which doesn't... Yes, we have a lot of game fairs, but you know, for the fishing industry, we're all there, and we're sort of quite solitary animals, I guess, fishermen. Uh, so to to all get together and be in one place, well, the wheels came off, as you can imagine, and uh, it was just fascinating to see people that spoken to on the phone or emailed many times in the past, but had never actually met, mm. uh, and also seeing what influences were coming from abroad. Uh, you know, we've got I, I I can't help but feel sometimes in the UK that 
for all our field sports that we are behind the rest of the world and how we promote to each other i would agree uh and also how we look at ourselves i uh, and and also the image that we have to the to the non field sports public uh you know in america for example and canada and iceland you know their their fishing advertising their marketing is is geared up to the sort of skiers and surfers Whereas if you went down to London or wherever and said, uh, what do you think a fly fisherman would look like? It wouldn't be what most of the, you know, and they're create, generating a lot of interest from from, from a whole new uh, sort of They've tapped catchment. Into it, yeah. And I think we could do that here. They've made it kind of cool and trendy. I, I, was, just, I was just a way to say that. Yeah. It's making fly fishing cool. It is. <laughs> and, and, and I, I, I personally think fly fishing is very cool. Because I love fly fish. But I know I, I, I joke. You see me I in my waders. I look awesome. <laughs> you're, you're right, though. Uh, and more broadly, you're, you're most definitely right that I think in some aspects, and, and certainly in terms of uh, perception and the way of taking things forward and the way that we are portrayed, we are very much behind. Yeah. We, we're very inward looking here. And we could learn a lot. Uh, and I think we should. And this is something that we're very keen to talk about is that I think as, as hunters here, wh- wh- whatever you're doing, whether you're fly fishing, uh, whether you like hunting with hounds or whether you're stalking or driven shooting, I think we need to pay more attention, firstly, of the other parts of field sports within this country, but most definitely what's happening outside our shores. Because there is a lot of things happening in the big bad world out there which will affect us one day. And this kind of approach of... Ah, well, you know, we don't have bears here or we don't have elephants here, so we're not going to make a statement on it. Yeah. Or I'm not really going to take much time to look into it or have an opinion on it because it doesn't affect me. I'm never going to go and do that kind of hunting. I think it's quite ignorant. Well, it is. I mean, unfortunately, everything goes back to um, Cecil nowadays. But you have, you have <laughs> It was to, a catalyst. Yeah. But it was. And you can go, oh, well, it's in Africa. It's not going to affect us. But actually, it does because anyone that goes trophy hunting of stags is now put into while well, you're a trophy hunter of deer now in this country everyone because uh, the people especially people that are against it they don't care that it's all separate they just put you all in one one bag together uh yeah i, I can and we're in danger of doing that so you do need to care about what's going on in other countries because it does affect you. And and I think Cecil proved that, that it happened in a land far away that many people probably will never even visit in their lives, yeah. but yet it touched nearly every person in the world. Uh, Everyone think, had an opinion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they did. Yeah. Uh, mostly uninformed. <laughs> uh, and I think the other thing about just having a better understanding is it will help put some of the issues that we have in our country within field sports into perspective and actually into a hierarchy of importance of the things that we need to really focus on and concentrate um, to protect our landscape and our wildlife and the hunting that's associated with that for the long term, for with a long-term view. There are things like like the issues that might be associated now and in the future in terms of the public perception with bag sizes, because that's what we've been talking about, which in terms of things that we can fix as an industry, it's very, very easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy to fix that. Yeah. It shouldn't, you know, it it doesn't require much time or effort to fix that. And if you look at some of the issues that are happening globally, like I was telling you about before we just came on air, which is fairly recent with them banning grizzly bear hunting in uh, British Columbia, which we've talked about um, on this podcast before. So anyone listening who wants to hear about that, I'll refer you to the podcast with Adam Yankee, who talks all about it. But that precedent that has been set there where um, the hunting of a species has been banned simply because 
they decided they didn't like the hunting of it anymore, not on the science that backed the hunting of it and the research that was funded by it, is incredibly worrying. Yeah. Because that is that is a, a move because of a knee-jerk reaction from politicians basically concerned about them getting into their their jobs in three or four years' uh, time again. And we, we saw it, uh, I think we've talked about on a previous podcast, uh, the same thing about not caring, well, not caring even over borders within the UK. Um, very, I would say, very little done was, very little was done, especially from the south of the border, about air gun licensing in Scotland. Um, and not a huge amount of noise was really made about it in the shooting Well, considering that most of the population is south of the border, yeah. we've only got 5 million people. Yeah, here. that's what I'm saying. And so it happened in Scotland, and now I'm seeing online, because there's a way to happen in England, everyone's going, oh, this is a tragedy, sign this, petition this. I'm like, well, no, because it's going to happen regardless, yeah. because you did, not, you did nothing to stop it here um, in Scotland when you could have actually... Helped, had, yeah. Had, helped had more of a more of a thing in Scotland, and then it probably might not have come to England. But it's too also, late. Also, I don't think people quite realise that actually, if you come up here on a holiday and you bring your air rifle and you live south of the border, you've got to get a visitor's yeah, permit. Yeah, you need a permit. Yeah, <laughs> and I and I, I I I would imagine that most people don't know that. Mm. Uh, it wasn't very well publicised. It wasn't. It still is not being very... Because the thing is, I, I guarantee, I think it's it's pretty much widely accepted that there there must be air guns in Scotland, which I, are sitting unlicensed. I think, uh, and it, well, the, a lot of it will be grannies with... The, the, they don't even know they've got they don't them. Even know the, they've got the last them. figure that I th- saw online, and I, I don't know if this is true, was this 400,000 unlicensed air guns, it's which wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Air guns have been down for a very long time. And yeah. Like you said, it's the granny or the parents that have had... You know, it's sitting a, bu- dusty a, bu- a bunch a- of kids. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you know they've had two sons or something, and now it's sitting in their loft yeah. because they've had a pistol and and uh, and two air rifles between them when they were young kids, and now it's sitting in the loft, and they are technically breaking the law. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, but um, uh, yeah, to go back to the, the 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 point of that was, we really need to be concerned with what's going on globally. I think so, and I, but I also uh, I I think that uh, within the UK at the moment there seems to be social media. Cecil the Lion classic case where social media picked up on it and it was just a sort of the uh, ill-informed venting their uh, their views online. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that now in the UK we are building up a really good group of um, huntsmen and women who uh, are active on social media, are, are putting the message across in, in very different ways, all of them all of them in very different ways, which is brilliant because it means that we're reaching out to different, to people. different people, which is fantastic. Um, and I think that that's they're probably doing as much good as potentially some of our organisations are actually getting people on side and make not making them understand because it's not about making it's them. It's helping, but, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's about sort of educating. It is yeah. providing the the information for people to consume. Yeah, and I think that's really exciting that that's happening already. Um, and the message is filtering out there, um, and I'm I'm not one of those people. I'm not very good at social media, but the uh, you know there's Marina Gibson in fishing, for yep. example, Rachel Carey in shooting, um, and uh, the the London fly sh- fly fisher. Uh, you know they're all doing some really cool stuff. Some of it some people might not agree with. Some people might look at it and go, "Well, hang on a minute, that's not the fishing I know." But do you know what? They're getting out there and they're actually reaching out to parts of the community that yeah haven't been and that's absolutely key because yeah. that's one thing that uh, the shooting community 
from organizations down have been just frankly terrible at for the last couple of decades, which is realizing that we need to communicate with everybody else outside of the people who already fish and who already hunt, because that is, in my mind, that is the only way that there's a future. But it also, I think, more and more needs a personal touch. So you can't just have a like a what you want to call a faceless organization coming out with these big it's, statements. You need someone to either be the face of it or someone that they people can relate to, or even yeah. like you said, social media. Ask the damn question to the person, saying, "Why are you doing this?" And that person will reply. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a it's not a political broadcast. Yeah. No it's, one it's, listens to and the it's political almost broadcast. instantaneous yeah. as well. You know, I think a lot of these people have um, uh, very well, it's direct and instantaneous uh, contact with people who don't necessarily understand or agree with what we're doing. And I think there's also an element here of that historically we might have been slightly embarrassed about what we do not, no, not embarrassed but we didn't want to bring it up we didn't it want was confrontation quite insular, wasn't it yeah, yeah. we uh, not embarrassed confrontation yeah. we would avoid confrontation the whole time and actually i think that might have to change as well where we've got to turn around and and take some pride in what as an industry we do regardless of of what sport or what uh, field sport you offer and to, to what size or not i think we've got to turn around and, and show off and yes some of our organizations are very good at promoting that um but i think on an individual level if we can shout about it particularly sort of locally i mean i know that the the moors that we can see out of the window here uh have a very good group uh that promote all the conservation work they do all the work they do publicly like after the floods they went down and cleaned up the riverbanks got the caravan parks helped get the caravan parks ready for the guests that were arriving literally within within the month uh, and I think the more that that is promoted and, and show how integral field sports are to local communities, the better. Which yeah. I'm not saying hasn't been done, but I think will be done better with. It, it will be. And it, yeah. it, it is being done better. And we just we need to see more. Uh, of the, yeah. the, the crazy thing is, is that what people forget is a lot of this stuff that's been going on. You see in the ruling groups and what these other people on social media are presenting to people now has kind of really always been going on it's just that now more than ever people have to show they have no choice now because we've kind of been backed into this corner where you need to be seen to be doing these things yeah it has to be done now you if you are doing a good thing you need to be showing people you need to absolutely uh, which is kind of a sad thing that you have to prove that you're doing these things but that's the position we're in now absolutely and i think it you know the uh more 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 so now than ever, uh, landowners, keepers, um, gillies, uh, land managers are accountable for what happens on the land that they are managing. Um, and they're actually very much under the public eye, you know, more, more so perhaps up here in Scotland. But, you know, the more we can sort of be proactive and promote it, the better. Definitely. Um, and as I said, that, that goes across the board. What is encouraging to see as well is the the age range of of all these kind of uh, what you, I don't know I don't like using the word social media influencer because they're they're not they're more than that because these people they're are people are, who have voices yeah they have got voices of the For age whatever range reason, yeah. they're all fairly young people yeah and they are the future really including your son well absolutely <laughs> who, He's who, got a Facebook who, account who, yeah who, but. Who, <laughs> no but I'm the point but, but, is, but, yeah. he, but he has been published in field sports oh, yes. so, <laughs> yeah. so he's already been published and hopefully gets published more and you know that is potentially for him the start of something that could 
be part of his life yeah. for many years to come. And, you know, he's actually, we're looking after kind of his future because he's quite a bit, we're not that old, but he's quite a bit younger than us yes, now. Yeah, yeah. So the stuff we're doing now is going to help him and, and you know. So. Absolutely. But I was, you know, I was thinking the other day, I was, I was Owen Williams, I think, was one I, I, that, that came to mind. But, uh, you know, if you look back over sort of shooting, hunting, stalking, if you go back, the sort of Victorian era uh, and beyond sort of I'm thinking Peter Scott I'm thinking of all those people who really immersed themselves in the quarry that they yeah. were it they was were, about the wildlife it was about the wildlife and actually they become probably better known Peter Scott started you know they, Wagby as it Wagby yeah it, yeah. Well, it was then it was, yeah it was then um, now Bass now yeah and you know that that sort of uh, passion uh, for the quarry shone through, and I suspect it probably had it resonated throughout the bird loving. I mean, he's held up as a as a as a hero of 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 sort of any bird watcher out there. Um, but yet he was a hunting man at heart. That's where he came from. Just like Elder Leopold. And yeah, I mean, and, and, great. and I was and I was just trying to think of who who recently. Owen Williams is is definitely one of them, um, and various others. But you know, if we can get. We need more you know, of that. I, I don't have a, a particular knowledge of anything in particular. I know a lot about nothing, if that makes <laughs> sense. Um, and, and I was, after your interview with Owen, I, I did sit back and think, God, actually, what is my, what is the one thing that I really have a, a passion for? And I, I think it came down to deer and, and, and widgeon and teal uh, were the two that I, I picked out. And I thought, right, well, maybe this year I'll go away and, and actually research a little bit more about them, learn a bit more about them. And, and, and I think that ties in with perhaps where we started. Yeah, I mean, f- for us, and we, we talk about it quite a bit, is that just find a bit of time. In, if, you're, if you're someone who hunts and enjoys the countryside, just find a bit of time in your day or once a week to learn a little bit more about what you do. And we, ha- uh, we have said, just by listening to this podcast, you're learning. Yeah, you are, <laughs> of course. You, know, you listen to somebody like Owen, who was on only yeah. a few show, uh, shows ago. And within... 60 minutes, you've learned a screed of stuff you didn't oh, know before. Unbelievable. I, I challenge anybody to listen to that podcast, with the exception of Owen himself, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> to, to listen to that podcast and not learn something from it. I mean, I, I, I still cannot believe how often he rings, uh, tags a, a woodcock, uh, and then the following year, within a two-day period, he'll catch the same woodcock crazy, within in the same field within yards of where he called it the year before. I mean, just, it is mind-blowing, mm. the information that he is collating, and others are collating, too, about these birds. And, yeah, I just think it's amazing. Uh, I, we definitely have a, a responsibility as hunters to educate ourselves better, because it's, it is only with that education and knowledge and passion of the wildlife, because ultimately that's what it comes down. If the wildlife isn't there anymore, there's no hunting. And quite often that that role can be reversed. If there, we all very well know, if there was no um, hunting or management that has hunting as part of it, you know whether that be the the moors of Scotland here or we're talking about the continent of Africa, there would be no wildlife or a reduction of wildlife. Reduction, so it does yeah. go it does go um, to, sort of to and fro. But we do have a responsibility. Just uh, I, I think to be the more rounded hunter is to also learn more. Absolutely. Uh, and be more immersed in what you enjoy and what you're passionate about. And that's not uh, the latest gun and scope and kit and thermal. And that. You know, it's cool and sexy to read that stuff. And, you know, I used to I used to review rifles. I reviewed rifles for about 10 years. 
um, for sporting rifle. I used to re- review other bits and kit. And eventually I got to the point where I quite honestly was just, I was bored with it. And I realized also that here I am dedicating quite a lot of time. I mean, I, I love rifles. I, lo- I love just shooting them. <laughs> I forget about the face. hunting of it. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I love, I, I, I've got a fairly good knowledge of, of the history. And I, I, I there's probably not a, a model of rifle that I haven't fired that's available in this country. Um, certainly modern rifle. But I realized that it was a poor use of my time. Um, to spend all this time reviewing rifles when I could really be funneling that time into something which I probably, uh, and now I realize, I'm far more intrigued with, which is the conservation of wildlife and the habitat that they're in. So I, I've binned all of that. I don't write anything about reviewing stuff anymore. And I, re- I, re- I had that discussion with, with the editor of the magazine, and I've replaced all that with um, hunting and conservation articles. And f- I'm not expecting everybody to do that. It's still cool to look at new guns. <laughs> yes, everyone, everyone wants to put cool. a new, <laughs> new gun in the cupboard. But my point there is that it is f- hunting is far more than the shiny stuff. And if you can spend time looking at all the you know all of that kind of in the grand scheme of things insignificant to the the greater. Um, survival of of the habitat and the species then you can find time to go and pick up a book or read some some papers or just learn a little bit more and actually I, I i think that the uh the other one which could be uh perhaps even more enjoyable than sitting down and reading something is you know when you do these uh shooting hunting trips and in, in in on a smaller day we'll take uh pheasants and and partridges as an example uh if you're doing one of these sort of mini driven walked up days uh, your access to the keeper or the picker-upper is 90%. They are with you. <laughs> yep. So you can talk to them. They will talk to you. And the same goes with stalking. I, I love nothing more than uh, going up on the hill with someone who's stalked there for a while or just has a really in-depth knowledge of the hill and the deer that's the, that are there and all the animals, all the sort of flora and fauna. Now, I do suspect on occasion I've been told that a... Uh, an old stone wall, stone dike, is a is an illicit still, uh, <laughs> and actually it's just a wall. But that's good because I, yeah. I enjoy being told stories like that, real or not. Um, but no, when they're when they're talking about the front, and the same goes for a fishing gilly. You know, if you're there and he goes, oh, look, there's a there's a, a dipper over there. Do you see that? Oh, some road deer have just come down because you, you know very often you can get slightly mesmerised with what you're doing, and just to have that 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 knowledge there to teach you. I mean, field sports are great because you are. You never stop learning, and you never also stop changing your opinion as well. And I think that that's, is true. That is, and we shouldn't be afraid to change your yeah. opinion. Yeah, and, it's, and it's, okay, it's okay. It's okay to okay. go back on something that you might believe in and go. Actually, you know what? I've, Do you know I've, what? I was I've probably been, wrong. I was probably wrong. Yeah, it's okay with that. <laughs> Absolutely, I think that that you know you can you can talk to a keeper here and a keeper 100 miles away, and they'll have very conflicting views, but they might have very good arguments and their their experience will have told them completely different things. And I, I think that is a real, really sort of exciting thing about going out. It, it absolutely is. And, and an incredibly important aspect of why we need to uh, protect the the way that we manage the landscape here with the, the, the gamekeepers and the stalkers, because they have on-the-ground knowledge, which you cannot replace. No. There is nobody else in this country, north and south of the border, who spends more time with their feet on the ground than a gamekeeper and a stalker? There just isn't. It's well, impossible. Sort of because eleven hours of the day, aren't they? They are. <laughs> so, to, as a you know, we hunt a lot, but 
not to the extent that these guys do. So when you have a chance, just like you said, to have a discussion with them, you're getting uh, knowledge which they've gathered over years and decades and most of those years and decades in the Hill, which it's it's impossible to get that reading a book. You can get some of it, but some of the knowledge that they have some of it sadly will be lost well, you know when they pass away because it just it never gets written down it only gets passed on word of mouth so yeah take the time to speak to those to, great great people men and women absolutely and actually the uh, you know in Scotland and the whole of the UK owners change but very often keepers are keepers stalkers are that remain yeah they're the consistency uh and i think that that is uh, a massive asset that we have as an industry yeah it is Charlie, it has been fantastic to have you on the show today. Thank we've you. we've gone in all sorts of uh, different corners. I, I'm pretty sure there will be a lot of people really agreeing with things that have been said today, and equally there will be some people. I'm sh- I've, I am sure that we're going to get emails probably uh, picking us up on some of the stuff that we've said. I'm but sure. the point is that it's creating discussion. Yeah. If uh, anyone wants to get in contact with you, or perhaps maybe oh, book put a, me in the book, firing line, quick. Uh, <laughs> book, book a book a train. <laughs> book a train. Perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how, what's the best way to do that? Uh, well, you can get me on. Uh, best way is my email address which is charlie at charlesbrownlow.com and then if you google charlie brownlow i'm not the mass murderer from america <laughs> I, 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 is he the first I, one that comes up that's yeah. an unfortunate <laughs> luckily thing. luckily over the years i've crept above him yeah. or the guy or the chief inspector off the bill i'm not him either <laughs> um uh, it comes up top charlie brownlow um and uh, you can see what i do perfect Great. thank you guys no absolute pleasure So now we're going to go from one end of the spectrum to the other, from the hunting of game to the eating of game, and you're going to hear from Tim Woodward from the Country Food Trust. And if it doesn't make you hungry, there's something wrong with you, because I've edited the show, and obviously when we were recording it, I was bloody, st- I felt so hungry by the end of it, talking about the delicious uh, dishes. Um, so yeah, enjoy the show. I should say that I, we thought this when we when we actually recorded this podcast in the first place, that it, it's incredibly good value. Oh yeah, food. no, very Go good Go and value. buy some, yeah. because you're helping, you're helping support the cause, as if you just as a, a general person on the street goes and buys some food from you, you get to hear in detail uh about how it how it all works um but basically when you buy a packet you're buying a, uh, a packet i say a packet it's like a ration pack mm. when you buy a pack uh another pack is donated directly to um, people in need so you're eating and someone else is eating which is a very cool thing and it's a very affordable price enjoy the show Tim, welcome to the show and thank you very much for joining us today. I think the first time that I was aware of the Country Food Trust was probably when I was wandering around the game fair just north of London last year. For those people who either haven't heard about it or don't know much about it, can you just explain to me what the the premise of the Trust is and how it was set up? Sure. Sure. Um, and thank you very much indeed for having me on your podcast. That's great. Um, the aim of the charity is really very simple. We're just really there to try and feed as many people in need in this country as we can. Um, we set ourselves up about um, three years ago, 2014, late in the year, was our um, first sort of conversation about it. And really the suggestion was that we could feed people in need utilizing game. Um, and there were a couple of reasons we went down this route. Um, the first reason was obviously there are about 14 million people in this country in need uh, or in poverty, um, and an undecipherable amount of those are actually in food poverty, but a lot of them um, are in food poverty as well. 
Uh, and the second thing is when we went to charities who were helping these people and said, what are you missing? You know, what, what's missing from the stuff that's donated into you? Then meat came up as a really main, main sort of um, area where they weren't getting enough um, handed in mm. or donated in. So that's why we went down that route. Yeah, I mean, meat, generally speaking, is, is very expensive. So I suppose it's uh, it was probably one of the reasons you don't find people uh, putting it in and donating. And also, it has a, a sell it, by date. yeah, it has a fairly short shelf life by comparison to tin food that you could donate to to a homeless shelter or a charity like that. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, a lot of the meat that goes into the charities comes frozen or chilled, and that presents huge sort of administrative problems. Not only do not all charities have the large freezers or chillers they need to keep that um, but as you say it's also expensive so I think one of the things we also talked to them about is how would you like it produced so we really did start off with a blank sheet and I promise you my background is not a food producer but I am now playing as a food producer and moving into that area and we really took a lot of advice and took a couple of really bad turns the wrong way to begin with um, but I think we, we really spent some time doing some research. And one of the things was to try and come up with an ambient product so it doesn't need to be chilled, um, doesn't need to be frozen. And that's what we've come up with. The um, the product we produce, um, the, the first product was a pheasant casserole, and it was uh, produced in a, in a pouch. Uh, and this pouch is retorted. And um, the army used the retorted food quite a lot as well. So it's a plastic pouch. And basically, in the old-fashioned way, it's pressure-cooked. So we don't add any um, um, ingredients that aren't pure into there, but the pressure cooking kills all the bacteria and enables it to be ambient. So it has a shelf life of a year. And the charities just thought that was fantastic because clearly if they get fresh meat in, they can use that and have ours as a backup. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine that that whole process of trying to work out how you were going to package your end product in, in the first place must have been quite a big learning curve if it wasn't an industry that you came from. No, it was. I mean, I think we started off and we thought, you know, this is going to be really simple. We'll go around and we'll collect game birds from shoots. Um, then we'll process them ourselves and then we'll cook something and then we'll deliver using the same vans or deliver it to people in need. And I think when we costed that out, it came out into the millions. And not, not only the cost, but the sheer regulatory pressure that would have been on us to do it. So um, very early on, or after a couple of months, we decided the best thing to do was go more virtual so when I say that, what we do now is we don't go around collecting birds because that is incredibly complex. Um, and also we wanted to stay on side with everybody in the um, shooting community. So we don't get in the way. So we don't go and collect birds currently. But what we do do is we buy the meat from the game dealers and they've been incredibly supportive. Um, we then, um, so obviously they've processed the birds for us and we buy diced pheasant meat or diced partridge meat okay. from them. We then, sorry. Okay, I didn't realize it. My my assumption, uh, not having really looked at it into great depth, was that you yeah. were taking it sort of straight from the source. I didn't realize that there was a game dealer involved in between. Yeah, I mean, we we I, I promise you, we tried very, very hard to do it. And in fact, we have got a plan for next year to try and do it. The problem being is if you're cooking for people in need, let alone anybody, but people in need particularly, you have to be super careful and on top of all the regulations, which means the meat has to go into a and that was the third part, was going into a um, third-party manufacturer. So the manufacturer we use um, also cooks for M&S, Tesco's, and all the major supermarkets. So they turn around and they will not accept meat in from 99 different sources. They have to actually go and audit every source of the meat coming in. Yeah. So we have a plan for next year, which is that people will be able to deliver 
their pheasants to game dealers, but game dealers will always be part of what we do. Okay, I understand. I'm curious um, to know, I mean, we eat a lot of game meat. Uh, that's yep. Right now I'm busy filling my freezer in preparation for when the season finishes so I the, can be... The summer months. <laughs> the summer months. Yes, absolutely. Um, but from, from the outside, especially if you're looking at birds, one of the questions would be, uh, you might have shot in there. Now, if you've got a, a bird which is a carcass that's being cooked fully, you understand, okay, I am eating... I'm eating a bird that's been shot, so you're kind of careful of it. It's actually pretty rare that you ever do get a pellet and you spit it out on the plate. How do they? Pro- how does the process work to remove that with the sort of finished product that you're you're presenting? Well, it's a really good question. I think the question's really valid for what we do because, of course, unlike you, have a choice of whether you're eating. Some of the people that we are donating the food to may or may not have a choice of what they eat. So I think even more so. We have to be um, super careful about that. So what we did, we looked around and said, okay, what is everybody else doing? If you buy a pheasant, not if you shoot one yourself and eat it from your own shoot, but if you buy a pheasant, what have they done? What do we have to need to reach that level, and if not more? And so so what we've done, the first thing is in in using diced meat, all the meat we do is is hand-diced. If any of the meat is bruised or damaged in any way, it doesn't come to us. So we only take clean breast meat into our products. So that's, that's the first point. Secondly, the um, meat is then um, goes through a lead scanner, um, and it goes through a lead scanner at the game dealer. And secondly, it goes through a lead scanner at the production facility. Um, and to give you an idea on that, when we had a bad batch of meat, i.e. meat that didn't come through very well and had lead in it, we did a run the other day of 24,000 casseroles, and 3,000 of that did not make it to cooking. Um, that is a waste, and we have to really work hard to make sure the lead's extracted first. But the point is that when it makes it onto the, um, into the production facility, um, anything, any package with lead in is knocked off the line and thrown away. So we think we do a pretty good job of moving the lead out of our product. And what is the, the what is the up? To, have you had much feedback from the the? Because you you must be giving these to charities, uh, other charities. Yeah. Have you had much feedback from them as to uh, the people and their receptiveness to eating game? I mean, I understand that in, in some circumstances, people are just just incredibly grateful to have something to eat. Yeah. But there still must be um, a level of, you know, we're enjoying this. It's something different because, you know, in most people's normal day-to-day lives, they're not eating game. No, I think I think that's the other thing. I think one of the things we're not trying to do is persuade people that, you know, that they need to be encountering a really odd taste here. So the recipes we've got, and we've got this brilliant chef called Tim Maddams. Yes. He used to work at the River Cottage helping us. But one of the aims we gave him is, please produce something that is not an assault on people's taste buds. So if you look at the casserole that we produced, it's got quite a lot of lentils in it. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit um, spicy, but not very. Uh, and, and equally the curry. So, you know, that's partridge, fresh, squash, tomatoes, coconut, and some spices. The aim here is, that, dare I say it, is that most people don't necessarily know they're eating game in terms of the taste because it's in the casserole or curry. It tastes very similar to chicken. So, I mean, they do know because, of course, one of the things we do is send a note out to every charity about the lead, which we were talking about just a minute ago, saying, please be careful, please don't feed to children, please don't feed to women who are expecting or... Um, or have have children, um, because we're, we're again another layer of, of protection against the, the only the right people eating this product. Um, 
but so they're, they're fully aware of what they're eating. And the other day I was um, out of one of the charities and this woman came up to me and said, you guy that does the casseroles. And in front of a whole load of people who were just collecting food, I said, yes, it's absolutely brilliant. Just loved it. It's fantastic. Oh, so I think great. the feedback's been very good. Oh, no, that, that is tremendous. It must be very heartening when you, you do hear directly from, from the people who are consuming it that it's been fed on to you, that they're, they're you know, enjoying what has taken, um, obviously, a considerable effort to get to this point. You're actually making me hungry when you start <laughs> talking about the recipes. Well, I tell you, the, um, the trustees behind this charity are absolutely wonderful, but um, it's a, it's, I, I work, to begin with, the first couple of years worked on my own. I now have a wonderful um, person helping me on the operational side. But if you sit alone doing this, one of the great joys is actually going out and seeing the people you're feeding because if you're ever feeling slightly down or slightly tired, if you go out and see people who are in just desperate need in this country, it does motivate you to get back to work and keep raising funds and keep producing more and more. So, I mean, so yes. So. Talking about the, the, the funding side of it, so how, how does it yep. work for you to be able to – are you able to actually give these the, the food to the charities or how does that aspect work? Where do you get your support from? So, so what we do is there's about there's about three or four ways that we do it, and and um, the first way is people right from the beginning just fund it, um, and the funding came from a huge variety of sources. It was, I mean, as you'd imagine, a lot of people within field sports yeah. um, thought this was something that would be a, a great give back to the community. So we got some significant funding to begin with, and some of it from very wealthy people. Now, increasingly, it's people who around the country who shoot raise money for us. Um, either individual shoots, individual shooters. It doesn't need to be. We also get a lot of money coming in from people who want to help people in need. So we have those all sorts of quadrants coming in to help us. Um, but we also have two other ways. We've, If you look on our website, um, then you'll see that we have a lot of corporate supporters. And these are a real mixture of people. They are, as you'd expect, um, people involved in field sports, but they're also um, people just involved in the country. And um, what they do is they pay £750 a year, and in return, we simply display their logo on our site. It's sort of crowdfunding. They don't get anything else other than um, we, they're there on the site showing that they have supported us to that amount. And then we also have an accredited shoot scheme where shoots who want to be involved, um, many give us a pound a bird they shoot. Um, the smaller shoots, some just collect money from the people that shoot. But we have an accredited shoot scheme, and they give us a variable amount. Some of the top shoots are giving us five, six thousand pounds a year from their collections. Um, but some of the small ones, two, three hundred pounds. But that's everybody's being involved. And then we have an individual supporters, um, individual supporters scheme as well. And on that one, that that's forty pounds a year. You get a badge for it. But what we do is, for forty pounds, we use all of it by £1.50 to feed people in need. So there's no extras, there's no insurance or anything else or, or fluffy stuff. It's simply one badge and you get to know that you feed 25 people. Hmm. Oh, amazing. So, so yeah, it's going directly it to where, where people intend the money to go. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very much. And the, the other thing we're doing, which is somewhat, I think people get quite confused, we're actually selling the product. I was going to ask you about this, yeah. Yeah. So, and you can see you can see that online. We've got a, a couple of outlets for it. The idea here is that every time you buy one of these products to to feed yourself, your sheep, maybe your beaters, maybe your family, whoever you'd like to feed with it, um, we will provide one to someone in need. So, what we're really doing there is just sort of leveraging it. And it doesn't take <laughs> too much of a genius to say what we're do, doing is selling it at double the cost of production. Yeah. So, if you buy a casserole, uh, um, for every one that's bought, we donate one. 
So in our first year, for example, we donated 17,000 people from funds we had. We sold 1,000, and that meant we could donate another 1,000. So our total donations came to 18,000. And obviously that's an area we're exploring because it would be wonderful if we could sell this product in large amounts on that basis that every time you buy one, an identical product is given to someone in need. No, that would be true. I mean, is it something that we might see one day in on a supermarket shelf? Do you know, I think um, we we certainly had that ambition. We've had some very good trustees from the food business come and have a good look at what we're doing. Um, and as you you'll know, space on any supermarket shelf is incredibly tight. Yes. So I think at the moment we sell online. We um, certainly um, shoot and um, sell for us. Um, and we're looking probably more along the lines of going through farm shops and delis and that sort of area where we think it may sell better. I think by the time we go to a major supermarket or a multiple, we have to go there and say, right, this is a really solid product. We absolutely know that there's nothing wrong, you know, in terms of taste or content and all the rest of it. And I think we're probably a little early for that. But yes, certainly down the line, could we put this on shelves? I very much hope so. I think the range is good enough and the feedback has been astonishing from people who've tried the product. I think a lot of people have started off saying, well, if you're producing something for people in need, it's probably not going to taste very good. <laughs> but actually, right. we started the other way around and said, this has got to taste good enough for everybody to want to eat it before we'll even consider giving it to people in need. Well, you've got a very a very fine uh, chef there uh, sorting out your recipes. Indeed. So I have every faith Indeed. that it's going to taste good. I haven't had a chance to try it myself yet. So how many different recipes or uh, variations do you have right now? At the moment, we have two. We started off with a very simple um, part, uh, sorry, pheasant casserole, which we call the country casserole. Um, and as I say, that's, um, that's basically got lentils, vegetables, and herbs. When we first started trying to do it, we were going to put back bacon in to add some calories because you'll know one of the bizarre things about, about game bird meat is it's quite low in fat and therefore quite low in calories. So our first trial was almost a dietary product which could be a tip for anybody else listening if they want to go down that route, but <laughs> we're not following it. Um, so we put back bacon in, um, and then we got feedback saying, you know, people for religious reasons, either from, from from Muslim faith or from a Jewish faith, that wouldn't be acceptable. So we removed that and added lentils, which has added the calories up. Um, and then the second product we've just launched, and we launched it at the game fair where we may have seen you, um, is a diced partridge in a curry. It's a squash, tomatoes, coconut, and spices. And again, designed to be slightly spicy, but not it's not challenging people to eat. It's meant to be delicious. And the idea here is that if you're, we can either hand them out to people um, at food banks, because of course, this is already cooked, this food. So at the very worst, you can simply open the packet, which is a rip open uh, and eat it cold. I mean, I've tried it cold. Like anything, it's, it's, it's edible and, and it has a good taste, but it's much better warm. Um, but so we can go to food banks primarily, but also very simple for chefs who are often volunteers in charitable institutions feeding lots of people like soup kitchens to, to simply open these packs and add rice, add potatoes, add bread, or add a bit of carbohydrate just to bulk it out a little bit. So is it, so, one, um, is it one pack for one meal, uh, as in it would yeah. feed one person? Yes, it's, it's, it's 300 grams of okay, protein. Yeah. We have upped Again, we've taken a lot of advice in the first year. We've upped the amount of meat to 90 grams, so it's a 30% meat product. We're told that if you go over 30% in a, in a stew or curry, it becomes too much protein, and you can sort of overdo the protein. So very roughly, it's a pheasant breast in a casserole and a, an entire um, partridge, both breasts in a, in a curry. 
I think I'm going to have to think about my... roughly what you're eating. I was just going to say, I think I'm going to have to think about my protein intake because it's certainly more than 30% <laughs> in a meal. I think maybe those ratios are probably flipped. But for, for, for people that are interested... Oh, sorry, I was just saying, for people that are is interested in purchasing one of these online, what are they looking to... What, how much do they cost? So the, um, the casserole costs £3.85 a pouch um, and the curry costs four twenty five. I mean, one of the reasons there is that, as people may or may not be aware, if you start looking... Um, for the actual cost of, of um, diced partridge breast, it's approximately double that of, um, of pheasant. Um, we, we do do a, um, a, a lower rate if you buy a box of eight pouches. Um, so that's £26 for the casserole and uh, £29 for the curry. That, that's actually, and, uh, if, if you think about ration packs themselves, um, and yep. it basically is a ration pack, that's what, it's the same process, yep. it's actually, yeah. your product is a, a lot cheaper than a ration pack. Yeah, you've actually, I have to say, you've taken me by surprise. I was expecting it to be quite a lot more, given that that's what you can buy it as a, a normal punter on the street, and you're able to give um, you're able to give food to a charity one-for-one one at that as well. So I think that's really yeah. quite impressive. I mean, the difference here, of course, is the charity is not for profit. So yeah. we, don't, yeah. we don't, our aim here is not to make. I mean, I think... At those prices, what we do is we take 5p a pack, which just goes to administrative costs, but there's only two of us working for the charity, um, and we, we keep our costs as low as possible. The aim here is that clearly in the startup stage, we, quite a lot of the money was used for development. But now as we look at it, what we're trying to do is say, okay, we need to take as much money as possible and put this into just directly into food. So yes, I think those, I, I mean, we looked around carefully at prices, um, I suppose if you go into an M&S and you look at the equivalent chicken sort of thing, it's, it's it can be more expensive. But of course, the actual cost of the chicken is considerably less. Yeah. I mean, a chicken is a very cheap meat in this country, um, whereas for us, the actual cost of the cost of buying meat from game dealers is fairly expensive. Hmm. Well, Bizarrely, the, the fact that you've got the process down to like three pounds, four pounds a pack, yep. and that is cooked game dealer. Yep. Um, and all the rest of the ingredients that goes with it, plus your production costs in and a way, the packaging. and the packaging to, at that cost is absolutely incredible. Like Brian said, yeah. I'm actually amazed at the, yeah. the price that that's down to. Yeah, and 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 absolutely. And, and if you go online, there's a, there's obviously a postal charge, but uh, one of the things we're looking to do is certainly with the charities, we deliver free by the pallet. Yeah. So a pallet is a thousand mil. So. And we're trying to work out, we work with this phenomenal charity called Fair Share, um, which is a national distribution company for food coming from supermarkets and all sorts of other sources, where I think one of the very few companies or charities rather that actually produced directly for them. But they, they took 22,000 um, meals off us just before Christmas and distributed around their network. And we're certainly working with them to try and get the food out to more and more charities. That was so, actually... Um, Sorry, that was, that, that was actually my next question, is your, sorry, your, your, your spread, um, which yes. you were kind of talking about. So do you cover the whole of the UK? Yes, absolutely. There is, um, we, the, one, of, one of the strange things, speaking from where you are, is that we are not a um, regulated charity in Scotland, so we don't collect money in Scotland, um, and it's something we're planning to do in the near future. But there's nothing to stop us delivering, delivering in Scotland. So recently, we, I think we sent three or four thousand casseroles up into scotland to fair share warehouses so yes we deliver throughout northern ireland i think something we haven't done yet um as i say we're pretty much in the sort of starting process here but right now i'm in the process of looking to deliver seventy-five thousand meals out to institutions 
can use it to feed people in need. Oh, that's absolutely tremendous. And this season, uh, well, sorry, this season, this show yep. season that's coming up, rather than shooting season, which is just coming to an end as we as we speak now, are you going to be at some game fairs this year for people to come and see you, speak to you, maybe try the product, maybe buy some from you? We, we, we to be honest, we, we did it. We were at the game fair last year, and I yep. hope very much we'll be at the game fair again this year. One of the things is, um, again, this just comes down to sheer cost. And um, and the game fair, by the way, been wonderful. They very kindly gave us a um, gave us our, um, a stall last year, and we we got very good promotion last year because um, a couple of our key supporters also were on the front page of the Sunday Times yes. during the game fair. So that was incredibly helpful in getting our, our name out there. Um, I think it's really useful for us to turn up. It, it sort of comes down to where can I be at what time. Yeah, <laughs> and. Um, as I say, there's two of us. We do have people who will volunteer. We have a great set of ambassadors um, out in various counties, so we'll probably utilise them to go along. Um, but yes, I mean, I think if certainly I'd, I'd love to speak to you afterwards if you if you'd like to recommend place to go, we'd certainly turn up. Yeah, no, we I think can what we're re- well, go on. no, I was just saying we, we can certainly uh, try and point you yeah. in the in the right direction to places which we think would be would be good. But yeah, uh, that would be great. I'm very happy to stand on stage and talk about it and, and bring along trials. We do that fairly frequently. Um, just as we sort of close this up, have you uh, had any kind of? Has there been any negative aspects from the greater media with with regard to what you're trying to do? I, I mean, it seems hard to think why would there be? You're trying to feed people in need, but as we all know, with anything that has any kind of links to shooting and it's game meat that's that's in, that's in the product, it's very easy for that to be turned on its head by the media. I think um, the answer to that is a yes and no. I mean, the, the, the reality is, have we had anybody come after us for what we're doing? No. Um, I, I, but have we had people going after shooting because we have a connection to it? Yes. And um, so, you know, we have a number of products. I mean, at the moment, it's game meat we're utilizing, but we're looking, there's a whole raft of meats out there that are possibly underutilized. You know, if you're looking at layers, chickens, mutton, um, kid goats, all, all sorts of foods that, you know, as a charity, we may well look at, and t- certainly Tim Madams is, is helping us along those lines. In terms of the um, the noise against us, it, it tends to come when we get publicity. I think the people that don't like um, shooting will come up against it and, and go against shooting. And I, I think, in fairness, you know, this charity doesn't lobby. It's absolutely specifically not a lobby charity. It's there to feed people in need. We completely understand that there's some people don't approve of shooting and, and some people obviously do. But it's a legal sport uh, and, and that's as far as we go. So we tend to, I, I tend to reply to most people who are against us and say, listen, you know, this is a legal sport and we're utilising the meat in a beneficial way for, for people in dire need. And we don't tend to get much that tends to stop the conversation. But clearly a number of people disapprove of shooting and, and they, at any chance, will, will sort of um, raise raise their arguments against it when when we're in the public eye. So, looking at numbers, last year, do you or you probably do have a number of how many meals that you made and gave out last year? Um, yes, I mean the total we've just literally last week, um, and we we count on a different way. But um, we have produced just over one hundred thousand meals. So the first year we produced twenty thousand and donated those. We are in the middle of donating now. So we have a sort of season whereby, as you will understand, from sort of November to the end of January, it's very difficult for us to operate. 
with the sporting community because most of them are incredibly busy. Yeah. So that's when really when we produce and distribute. And that's also when charities are most in need. Right now, a lot of charities get a lot of food in um, over Christmas, but January and February, when the winter continues to be harsh, tends to be a bit of a drop-off. Um, and also during school holidays, that tends to be a sort of a big demand side. So um, we, as I say, are just over 100,000 in the middle of distributing. I hope by the end of this month, we will have I'd be able to say we've fed somewhere in the region of 95,000 people. No, that's, the, that's, that's fantastic, and it, it really, it, it truly is a great, great initiative. And I'm glad that it's, it's proving successful and working um, to to feed people around the country. And the fact that you're using game meat is is brilliant because it is it is underutilized, and it should be, generally speaking, outside of people who are actually just in need of food. I think it should be eaten more because. It has a, a lot of uh, great great aspects, great properties, and I happen to think it tastes fantastic as well. Uh, so I absolutely commend what, what has been done, and thank you very much for taking the time to, to come on the show and tell everybody about it, Tim. Not at all. If, I, if, if people would like to know more, obviously we have a website, www.thecountryfoodtrust.org. And if I may, if, if anybody listens to this and they support a charity, um, that supports people in need in food poverty, please go online. There's an ability for you to contact us and request food, and we're more than happy to feed anybody in need in any location in the country. Oh, that's fantastic. And I thought what you were saying uh, earlier at the start of our conversation about um, the syndicates or, or shoots that can be associated, I think that's also a fantastic thing. So I will uh, find out the details of that, which I'm sure are on your, your website, and we can, we can talk about that in the, the intro or outro to this podcast. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much for listening. It has been uh, a great show, uh, two hours of awesomeness. Uh, if you want more details about anything that goes on, if you want to hear more about us as well, there's also previous podcasts uh, that goes into details as well as the Yorkshire Gent that was just on uh, today, the same day this, this was released. Uh, go to www.thepacebrothers.com and there's the links to the shops, there's uh, links to some resources on there, there's blog posts, uh, there's film festival stuff uh there's everything that you need to know is on there uh if you are a new listener and you're still trying to get the ropes of podcasts uh there's loads of different platforms out there that might be better uh we are on most of them the biggest one right now the biggest growing one is spotify uh you can have spotify for free i think you don't even need to make an account you can sign up through facebook if you've got facebook um and then obviously itunes is the the next one but we're on podbean acast the list goes on soundcloud as well for people that live on live on uh listen on desktop if you lived on a desktop (laughs) that would be quite something (laughs) uh yes so thank you very much and uh, join us again in two weeks time